Hello and welcome to episode 178 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 28th of February, 2017. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. Hello, Tom. Hi. Hi. It's just us two. It's just us two because everyone else has vanished. I think fantastic adventure times yeah. over the pond. Who knows what they're doing? Hmm. Unimaginable fun, I imagine. Um, a GDC, which I only understand as a kind of, you know, an eternal party where everyone you like is there. A bit like yeah. dying or the end of It's a Wonderful Life or both. I went there once and it was amazing. <laughs> it was, Damn it. was brilliant. I've never been and maybe I will never go. We'll mm. find out. Maybe I will. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so we have both got, well, we have both got some, some pod news. Then there is some personal news. And there are some more pod news. The pod's news sandwich. And so, you know, we were creating the news this week, which is, um, which is probably bad form. But, uh, and also I don't want to worry people when I say that we have personal news and pod news because literally every other time that has happened, <laughs> it has meant someone leaving the country. That isn't happening. So the, the, the Chris and Tom news is that this week we put up the first episode of Miniatures Monthly at the Creighton Crowbar which is our name for the sort of miniatures and hobby gaming podcast that you and I are doing, Tom. Indeed. Every month from now on. Uh, we actually recorded the episode a little while ago and just we were both, for one thing, both incredibly busy with the PC Gamer Weekender, but then uh, we wanted to kind of make sure that we were happy with it and do some edits and things. We've, we put out the two-hour pilot episode, um, which is available on com now and via its own feed, which you'll find on on the crate and crowbar should be on the front page easy mm. to find be right underneath this this episode in fact um and in it we discuss kind of how we both got back into hobby games and what we've got out of them that maybe sits separately to what we've been getting out of video games over the last couple of years and talk about age of sigmar and uh, particularly the new warhammer that we both play mm. um and yeah it's very much a work in progress it's bit, i don't know about you but i find it a little bit weird to Given that we've done this 180, almost 180 times, yeah. if, it was strange how strange it was to do a new thing. It's because we're both kind of, I mean, we've both been doing that, uh, Warhammer stuff for about a year, but we're still kind of, and we, we were both played as youngsters, but we're still kind of not as steeped in that world as we are with games, which we've just lived as professionals. Yeah, like, I feel like I can, I, <laughs> I can talk a lot of bollocks in games <laughs> and pretend that it holds some weight simply because I've worked in at least some part of the industry for some sure. amount of time. Yeah, yeah. The miniatures stuff is stuff that we're entering into purely as fans and players. Mm. And that is a very different vibe. Uh, hopefully people who are interested in that kind of thing will enjoy the, the podcast. Um, we are open to questions and suggestions and, and how people would like it to go. Uh, I set up an email address for it, which is miniatures at greatandgrowbar.com. So you can email that to, to get in touch with that specific podcast after you've listened to it. Uh, it's very likely that uh, miniatures aren't like computer games. They're not, we can't kind of sample six different miniatures games in a week. And then get back to you with kind of our, our, you know, our feelings on each one based on an hour. You're talking about hundreds and thousands of hours of investment in, in, you know, games and settings. So it's very likely that that podcast will, will zoom in heavily on Age of Sigma because it's the thing you and I have in common mm. and branch out occasionally maybe to touch on things like X-Wing. But I, I'm genuinely personally a little bit afraid that X-Wing could turn into the Dota of the, <laughs> of the miniatures podcast as the thing I care about a lot mm. that no one else in the room really, you know, invests in at the same. We'll see how it goes and see what people like. I mean, yeah. there's a, there's every opportunity to kind of spin out X-Wing stuff into one-offs or tournament reports and that kind of thing. Yeah, so absolutely. there's all sorts of things we could do with it. But uh, feedback is amazing if, if you've got any because that's what really helps us to make it better. Yeah, indeed. And the other thing is that um, it will be a focus on 
um, miniatures and, and that kind of hobby gaming rather than broader tabletop. We have some other mm. thoughts about that. Um, but I think one thing we found when we were recording it, uh, not to make the entire opening of this podcast just about the miniatures pub, but like was, uh, I think the thing you and I both like feel com- most confident talking about is painting, mm. which is something specific and I think interesting about this side of the hobby or side of hobbies in general. Um, rather than like hardcore strategy game design or, or that kind of thing. So yeah. it might lean in that direction, but we're feeling it out. We have an email address for it. As I said, let us know what you like and don't like. And hopefully it's cool that finally Crank Crowbar is, is more than just one pod, right? We're going to this new thing. And that's also um, with great help from uh, our Patreon backers who allow yeah. us to do all of this stuff and keep these podcasts coming. Yeah, indeed. So um, this is the first sort of manifestation of what we've been able to do with the Patreon, um, the, which is patreon.com forward slash creating crowbar if you're interested in that um and indeed we're coming to the end of the first month that we've actually been running the patreon again mm. so we kind of got a sense now for how we can scope things out um not to confirm things yet in in solid top forms because we have learned our lessons about that um <laughs> from <laughs> previous special pods that may or may not have happened um but we do have some further plans particularly so if, if tabletop wargaming and painting tiny man isn't your bag um, we have some thoughts in the, in, with regards to some further video stuff we could do, uh, cause we know people enjoyed that in the past and also, um, some tabletop role playing stuff we might be able to do. Cause I love tabletop pen and paper role playing very much. Yeah. It doesn't fit within the remit of a, a chat about tabletop games in the way that the miniatures podcast covers. So that might be its own thing. Um, and that plan is going to kick into motion. So that is, that is the state of that stuff. And that all kind of ties into what's coming next because. The other cool thing that is happening at the end of this month, uh, sorry, as you listen to this, the end of this month, so the end of March, is we are going to do the first live Crate and Crowbar thing. Um, and I, when I say we, I mean, and I can confirm, Pip and Graham are going <laughs> to be heading this up because this will be at Rezd, which is uh, Gamer Network's, uh, I think, annual kind of, I think it's annual. I get confused with yeah, EGX so, sometimes. Yeah. They, they, they do multiple events, but Rest I think, is annual. Um, gaming event with a, with a focus on PC and indie and that kind of thing at uh, Tobacco Docks in London. And I think this year it's the 30th of March to the 1st of April. Um, we are going to be doing something on the Friday night or Friday, late Friday afternoon. So I think it's 4.30 on Friday as our slot, but there will be an announcement with the confirmed details of that. Um We've done sort of little ad hoc community meetups and things at, at the PC Gamer Weekender, two years running now, but we will have um, something planned around that. So if you're going to rest already and you listen to the Crate and Crowbar, cool, we'll be doing a thing and you can come along. Um, if you aren't planning to go to rest, but you can get to London or whatever, you fancy coming down, then that's a thing we will be doing. And it will very likely be our first live podcast. Uh, which is an interesting thought. I don't know if they will let us drink. <laughs> <laughs> they we, kind of have to, don't they? Do they? I don't well, think. I don't think they have say to. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Licensing laws might say no, but we can get really. We can have a lot of fizzy pop and talk about dope or something. I don't know. I don't know. I don't make any promises. Um, but yeah, so that will definitely be um, Pip and Graham um, plus guests. Uh, it'd be lovely to have Graham back. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you can, you know, meet him. Uh, he's real. Um, but we'll see, you know, who else, who else is able to sort of, uh, participate. And that brings me on to, uh, the personal news part of the extended Crit and Crowbar news section. 
uh, which is that uh, this week, uh, and so today, if you're listening to this, the day we put this out, is my final, my final days at PC Gamer after five and a half years. Um, I am going freelance. I have resigned. Um, and so, um, you know, in a positive way to, to move on and do broader projects and, and write more broadly. Uh, the good news about this is I am not changing career uh, in order to move to Sweden or Jersey or bugger off to Seattle. Um, this will actually give me more time for things like the Crate and Crowbar and its various spin-off projects, which answers one of the questions we had hanging over us, which was mm. how can three people with pretty time-consuming full-time jobs um, branch out into a little little podcast network. Mm. And that's how. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, did you resign spectacularly, Chris? Was there any uh, I sent drama? quite a polite email. Mm. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, it wasn't. Quite uh, reasonable. Yeah, no. Um, I, well, you know, I uh, I thought about it a bit. Probably not enough. <laughs> and then I sent a pull out trigger. Yeah. And that's not, that's not a surprise necessarily if, if people follow me on Twitter, they probably know that's happening. But, um, but that's, that's what's happening basically is, yeah. um, we are, we are shuffling things up. We're doing new things. So really yeah. exciting, I think. Really exciting times. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's some of the stuff that we would like to have done a while ago. Actually, yeah. But so. Circumstances just never quite came together and they finally have. So that's really cool. So the dates for Rose once again are the 30th of 30 to the 30, 30th of March to the 1st of April. And our appearance will be on Friday the 31st of March, um, as far as I'm aware. And like I say, hopefully by the time this goes up, there will be, Rarestwood themselves will have made an announcement that I can I can link you to. But yeah, definitely consider that because it should be fun. Yeah. And um, who knows, if, if you were, if you, <clears throat> if you were unemployed by then, you might, <laughs> I might just go along. Who knows? Who could say? Who can say? Um, so we should talk about what we've been playing that's what we do absolutely it is would you like to start with the shooting game or the thinky game i'd like to briefly start with the shooting game yeah let's because i think we should we, we both have a lot to say about the thinky game mm. yeah because i mean this is it's, i had a, a little shooty break after quite a thinky time right um because actually after two successive episodes which is one of the reasons i went on it too much i got i started playing sniper elite four um on first your recommendation mm. and then last week Alex Wilches and I don't have a lot to add to the kind of you know it's testicle popping good um, which is the it does feel I, good doesn't it it does feel good yeah um, but actually I was quite um, I've been really digging it and so I knew it was going to be like a marksmanship game and like a stealth game but even though it's got these like big open worlds the and you know you have targets in a big open world and stuff mm. it doesn't really remind me of Hitman or Far Cry. Far Cry's closer-ish, but it's not like just outposts. It's like each mission has a structure, right? Each mission has... Yeah, I, th I think those those maps are kind of chunked into mini objectives from mm. what I've played so far. I've only played the first mission and a half, though. Yeah, I've done three now. Mm. Um, and um, it's not it's not simply like, okay, it's a marksmanship game with gory fatalities, which is a thing. And it's not simply that it's a, like a freeform assassination game. The thing that actually reminds me of, weirdly is commandos oh yeah you know the old isometric or top-down yeah. kind of squad tactics game really hard game yeah a very hard game um so this is obviously gentler than that because partly you don't have to manage multiple people and also you don't have well you've got direct control over a single character in the third person and also you can quick load um it's similarly lethal actually we get shot at you die yeah, yeah. um 
there's something about the way you approach these little sort of pockets of World War Two, you know, fortifications and people walking around and case out your own approach to it, partly with the sniper rifle, which is your kind of primary tool, but also with trip mines and um, explosives and throwing rocks to distract guards and things um, that feels more sort of squad tactics-y in a weird way. Hmm. I don't know if that is a dumb thing to say for a game where you control one man. Hmm. I guess what I mean is it feels like the opponent you're up against is like behaves as a squad, like in quite a believable way. Like the AI is like really localized. It's not like map wide yeah. where you kill one person and it spreads everywhere. Mm. The way information is disseminated within these little groups of German soldiers is quite localized to like their checkpoint or their little base or something like that. And it spreads relatively realistically if you make a lot of noise. Mm. But when you start to manipulate the AI, they, they behave in a way that feels like you could also engage with those systems with a squad of soldiers and it would work just as well. I guess that's what I mean. The color line, it, I mean, Brothers in Arms was a, a great squad shooter. Um, but it played very differently, but it was about kind of controlling space and pinning and flanking and stuff. Mm. Whereas I think maybe with this is much more free form. Maybe it's the fact that with the tools you have available, particularly the sniper rifle, you just have a, a lot of control over a very wide area, even as an individual. Yeah. Perhaps to the extent that you would expect to have as a squad. And the sniper rifle essentially lets you be in many different places at once because you can, you can shoot off a truck and it will go up like miles away. And then you could see men running towards it. And essentially you might have ordered, might as well have ordered a second dude to go and put a bomb on it. So maybe it's that, that, you know, I think that's exactly right, actually. Mm -hmm. I think that was, and the truck thing would be the, the example I would use. Like, I think a lot of stealth games, um, even excellent stealth games that I love, like Dishonored, mm. if like a lot of your, uh, I don't know if this is a bit of a wanky designy point, but like a lot of your power as a player is localized around you. Um, and even if you do something that affects an enemy a long way away, like shoot them with a, a gun or whatever, like all of that work drag ultimately drags attention back towards you. Right. So the more spotted you become kind of the worst it gets for you because mm. eventually that, that eye is going to be directed towards you whereas like obviously if you fire a gun in sniper elite people are going to look at you but if you mask your shot using the ambient sound that is in every level yeah or use suppressed rounds or, or whatever it is you do to mask it or simply find another way of achieving whatever distraction you want to do the ai behaves realistically as if the threat actually is coming from the direction that you've tricked them into yeah coming from and i haven't seen too many games that get that quite as right where like sometimes you really want like a big loud thing to happen but in the wrong direction like not a lot of stealth games work that way like the moment the the fucking bomb goes off is the moment the stealth ends whereas here it can actually set up like a whole chain of melee takedowns mm. because suddenly you have an entire checkpoint full of dudes just looking the wrong way the only other game i can think of that has done it well in recent times is metal gear solid 5 mm. where that's just a as a tactic i use repeatedly again that is a, a game about having huge amounts of control over a wide amount of space uh, particularly because you have a companion and if it's you know quiet or someone they can they can do a lot yeah know. i think that's a good point i think um i think maybe mgs5 what mgs5 doesn't have i think is or at least at m most of mgs5 um which is an excellent game what it doesn't have is like objectives that are crafted into the environment in quite the way that sniper elite does them like i think the third level of, of sniper elite is one where it kind of came alive for me a bit right so the way that level is shaped this is the one alex was talking about on the podcast last week with the railway gun on a viaduct okay so it's huge gun in the distance that you can see in the diff and it fires every couple of 
every like 10, 20 seconds. It gives you your and that's your mass shot. Yeah. But it's a massive level and it's basically a circle with the place you start that you can do a lap of to do all the objectives. And whichever mm. way around you choose to go is completely up to you. And the level unfolds differently based on the, the route you, you choose. And you can do a windy route if you want, but it's it's a big bowl, basically, like a big bowl-shaped valley. And the viaduct is at the far end from where you start, like 600 meters away. And, you know, you have to kind of start and return to the, the plot place you, you are. And there's a sort of, like, finding your own... One, it really feels it does feel like you're pining your own path through that... Um, challenge like through that particular landscape and, and determining how it all goes but secondly um there's a a really cool um degree to which you set your own challenges and can not game it a bit but you can like do things that um set you up for success but like miles ahead and like the, you know, so basically like you start the level on this little platform and you climb down into the level proper and you can go back up there at the end. Um, but I just sat there at the start and thought, oh, right. Well, I can see that 600 meters away, there are dudes guarding the gun, which is the final thing you have to do. You have to destroy it. Um, I'm going to see if I can take them all out from here. Like I'm so far away <laughs> that masking my shots even really is a concern. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'm 600 meters away and like they have a sniper up there and you know, a bunch of other things. And there was this really fun challenge of like, can I take them all out without missing and without, um, you know, uh, without sort of drawing attention anywhere closer to me. And that was watching the AI kind of panic because you're so far away. They mm. can't see you. Just don't know what's going on. Yeah. And they can't, you know, that's really satisfying. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> and like, and then when you finally get there, like probably an hour later and you're finding the bodies of the dudes you killed right at the start of the mission as a sniper, it's great. And the way you, it's not really a spoiler for mission. The way you destroy the viaduct is you place an explosive on the bridge support underneath it. Uh, but you have to shoot that explosive mm. because you can't put a timer on it because you couldn't get out of the way in time. So you have to, like, so I waited until I'd done everything else on the level and just returned to that gantry at the beginning of the level and fired this one, like, 650 meter shot <laughs> across the entire level. That's awesome. And that, if, like, I chose to do that. Like, the game didn't make me do that. Mm. I was just decided I was going to kind of style it out. Um, there's like another objective to blow up an ammo cache and another objective to blow up an armored car and the armored car is driving up a road that leads to past the ammo cache and back around again. The ammo cache is one of the things where you set a timer on a piece on an explosive and then it just run away and then it blows up when it blows up. That's obviously going to alert the guards. So it's up to you if you clear out the area in another way, sniping or melee or whatever. Um, I didn't clear out that area. I cleared enough to get to the explosives. I went out to the road and on a particular bend in the road, I laid some mines and some TNT and just set up a little trap for the armored car. Uh, to blow its tracks off. And then I gamed it a little bit because you can see on the map where the armored car is. And I waited, I sort of guessed, like I waited until the armored car was like what I thought was about 10 seconds from the trap I'd laid and then activated the timer on the ammo dump and just sort of started sprinting out of the level just because this looks cool, right? And some Germans go like, hey, look at that guy. Hmm. And he starts, you know, I start to run out and then the ammo dump goes up and this kind of huge explosion at the exact same time that the armored car goes over the um the thing and its tracks get blown off so there's two explosions in two different places at once and that the ai is then is is sort of has a bow of different things to deal with and that sound is dynamic and it covers different things covers me sprinting mm. um and then I, you know saw the armored car hadn't been fully like destroyed by this like hadn't killed the crew so i pulled out a flare gun which is something i took out off a spotter a german spotter which is an enemy type introduced in that mission 
and fired an artillery flare, like a German artillery flare, underneath the armoured car, and then just kept running, and then you just hear this kind of like whiz of yeah. shells as the Germans then blow up their own armoured car. And I felt like a fucking boss, because yeah. the timing came off. And I didn't need to do it that way, mm. but um, I'm genuinely impressed by it. Like, that's a fun thing to to engineer in your own speed. It's really cool. It, it makes me think, actually, that um, the, the levels are so large, it's tempting to describe it as open world, but I think that it highlights what's great about a designed level, even though it's very large, as opposed to, I, for example, Metal Gear Solid 5, I don't feel really gained very much for being open world. Mm. If, if Metal Gear Solid 5 had been like a separate large designed environment with those kind of opportunities built in, it might have been a much more exciting game. Uh, it's a great game, obviously, but um, I, I increasingly think that it, it, open worlds aren't easy, but just because you can do an open world with modern technology doesn't mean it's necessarily that very good for the design aims of the particular experience you're trying to create. Mm. So I increasingly worry about, for example, very interested in playing Mass Effect Andromeda, where technologically we're capable of creating huge environments now, but will that serve the story that game is trying to tell? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I think about this about The Witcher as well, where my favourite part of The Witcher was Toussaint, which is uh, a, it's still an open world area, but it's a much more manageable small kind of curated area than a lot of the main sprawling main game areas so uh, i think maybe some restraint on the part of designers in, in in not just saying this is huge look that mountain you can go over there but saying we, we're going to create a large area but it's going to be actually there's going to design intent behind it and this level's going to do something that the next level won't do i think sniper elite is an interesting example in that case because its levels are massive yeah like the first the first so the first one is big but then you get surprised by how big it actually gets the second level is quite different because it's quite urban uh for the most part and changes how you approach <coughs> it it feels not linear but like i approach in a super weird way but like you know it's they use cliffs and things to limit where you can go mm. the, the third one is the one that felt like fuck this is huge and it has like seven different objectives which is each 10 15 minutes of doing stuff yeah. to crack depending on how you do it um you know it felt like a mini open world in a way but because, like, if I go and crack an outpost in Far Cry, I'm maybe completing 2% of that game. Right. In terms of my perception of it, right? It's a sort of drop in the ocean. Whereas, because this might be seven things in a big level, each one of them feels like a little significant self-contained challenge. It is repetitive. I think that's definitely an issue with this, like yeah. any open world yeah, game. Sure. Hmm. Um, but I find, like, I don't do those levels in a single sitting. I load up my save. And I'll do one of those things or two of those things or see if I can do two of them at the same time or whatever it is. And then I switch it off with the kind of satisfied feeling of like, I've just solved like a big chunk of this, like 20% of that level has been struck off or mm. 30%. And that is a little bit more, you feel like you're making more progress while, you know, while still getting the satisfaction of like happening upon things in an open world, which is what an open world should offer. Um, but that's possible because it's a big designed space. Well, an open world is a big design space. It's a big level, mm. but a small open world. <laughs> You'd call them levels. I think that's it because they have their own identity. And when you move between levels, it gets to reset the kind of uh, aesthetic and, you know, fantasy of the area. Mm. And that's the thing that open worlds struggle to do without appearing to be incredibly contrived. So, you know, you know, wandering from the desert bit into the, the lava bit into the ice bit, you know, that, that kind of, that's a real problem for open worlds. Whereas having very large separated areas lets you, target different aspects of the the fancy you're trying to create yeah in a way that's far less jarring 
So, I mean, I'm surprised to come away. I mean, I'm surprised, honestly, that we've, we've spoken about Sniper Elite on three successive podcasts <laughs> yeah. now. It's a, but we've gotten quite far away from Nazi testicles. <laughs> we have. Exploding. So, fundamentally, that, that is a good part of the yeah. game. Yeah. No, I haven't shot a Nazi in the balls yet. I haven't uh, even seen it. I, I accidentally did. Right. Uh, it went through at the, uh, the hip because I misjudged. I shot a Nazi very clearly right up the arse. Oh, like right up his bum mm. because he was climbing over a wall at the time and I kind of panicked, snap fired yeah, a, yeah. A, a, you know, a fucking Winchester round right up his, 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 his bum. And right it taxi. doesn't have a slow-mo <laughs> cinematic animation for you've, this. You've got to leave features out for sequels. I think that's the thing. You've yeah. Got to, you know, it it definitely picks and is... chooses yeah. what <laughs> shot it's going to cinematically recreate <laughs> and a, and a doubled over Nazi taking a, a round up the arse is not one of the things they chose to lavish with that well, kind of attention. I'm sure they've got more DLC planned. Indeed, yeah. You could shoot Hitler, but you, can you shoot him up the shoot bomb? Him in the anus. Yeah, exactly. The next level. Um, so, you know, it's it highs and lows. But I, I was like, I, I picked it up on a whim having, you know, and I, I've really enjoyed it. And I think that's a, that's a thing to say in what is rapidly becoming an incredibly competitive opening to the year yeah. for your time. Holy crap. Yeah. And that I think brings us on to the thinky game it's the thinky talky reedy game so came out this week mm. torment tides of numenera uh, which is the spiritual successor to planescape torment mm. um i reviewed it for pc gamer i played it pre-release i've just not been able to talk about it for like three weeks so that's nice to finally be able to talk about it but you've been playing it as well tom and come at it completely fresh that like you didn't play any of the previous alphas no pre prayer yeah i had nothing also i have no familiarity with i i've only played like an hour of Planescape Torment, and I've, I'm not familiar at all with Numenera. Yeah. Setting. So, opposite angles. Yeah. And I really, I was definitely interested, I am definitely interested to hear what your kind of first impressions of it have been and kind of like where, how it's sort of shaped out for you. Yeah. Cause, cause you've GM'd Numenera campaigns, yeah. Chris. I mean, I've got them right there. Like, I've got like six different Numenera core books on that shelf. So, so it, yeah. So you obviously came into it with this like very kind of storied knowledge of, of how that world plays out. And what's kind of amazing about that world is that it's really super nuts. Mm. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a load of kind of crazy out there concepts. It's a very interesting uh, collision of science fiction and fantasy. More science fiction, really, but actually, but you know, uh, kind of. There's a load of kind of spiritual themes like woven into it, and mm. concepts of magic. Uh, essentially, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. You know far better than me. Like the uh, you enter the ninth world. Yeah. Um, after a period of just enormous societal booms and busts, various empires and things have risen and fallen. And you're now existing uh, on the detritus of all those many yeah. know, thousands of civilizations, perhaps. So even though it's one of the weirdest settings in terms of the amount of stuff it combines, it's um, Earth, mm. a billion years in the future. Mm. And, you know, like, it, you know, eagle-eyed viewers will notice that Earth probably should still be around a billion years in the future. And that is one of the many mysteries that sort of surrounds the setting where... The society in it is approximately medieval, really, mm. in some ways. Um, or like, or not medieval, but like Dungeons and Dragons medieval, right? Like, um, so fantasy people, but, you know, with a kind of not an advanced society necessarily. But everywhere they look, there is a, a billion years worth of human and other technological progress. Um, they just don't understand it. And that, uh, my first mis- uh, mistake about the setting, which I ass- and many people have, will assume this, I think, about the name, is that Numenera is the name of the place, whereas no. uh, Numenera is like almost like the word affirma, like uh, it's just the stuff of those past civilizations. Like, yeah. It's just the, the menagerie of all, all those objects. That any, is the any 
sort of ancient device. And, and, and no one knows what they do, but they're a kind of observable, of, 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 observable effects. Like some of them will actually, uh, some of them are just kind of strange, weird puzzle boxes. And it could be like a child's toy from thousands of years ago that doesn't do anything. But something else might let you set things on fire or it might be a living metal that fuses itself to your skull and then becomes part of you that you could control. Like you just don't know uh, what's going on. And, and you're, you're, you're thrust into this world as a kind of newly sleeved person, uh, a soul who's been thrust into a body, an unfamiliar body, falling out of the sky, crashing down into this place. And uh, like Planescape Torment, uh, the fantasy is incredibly good at supporting a video game adventure because the amnesia stuff and the dying and being reborn and coming back into the game over and over again is all catered to very, very well by the fiction. Mm. It's a really... Um, so this is the stuff that is new, that isn't taken from mm. the pen and paper game. But it's a really good take on amnesia. Like, when you say it's kind of a game about someone who doesn't know who they are, um, that feels like the oldest RPG cliche in the universe. Um, but it, it's kind of about that to an extent. Like, it, it, so you are not, your character who's called the last cast off is not, um, they didn't forget. They genuinely don't know because mm. they are a consciousness. You are a consciousness that has, um, been kind of called into being um to replace a consciousness that has fled your body mm. um this is not a spoiler this is first hour of the game stuff and i don't think we'll say too much that spreads beyond that necessarily yeah. if you're worried um you, you know you're you're kind of you're 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 a product of a person called the changing god um who was a human being that long ago found a way to transfer their consciousness into a new body and have used this over eons basically to prolong their life indefinitely mm. but a quirk of of fate or science or magic or whatever you whatever it is in the ninth world says that the uh, each of these bodies when they're discarded gains a personality they don't just they don't just become inert kind of soulless things like a soul just kind of forms mm. to fill the space and yours is the soul that has formed to fill this most recent space so you have freedom and a substantial amount of freedom to determine who that person is. And they genuinely are just coming into being. However, they have access to the memories of things their body did previously. And beyond that, memories that other, like the changing God has access to. Mm. And changing God is, is the being that has evacuated your body before yeah. you were formed. Yeah. Um, and so it's not amnesia because mm. they're not your memories. You, you access other you access the memories of the person who previously occupied your body. Mm, you're a tourist in those experiences. Yeah. And you know, and that, that is, that idea is one of the earliest ideas that it flexes in a bunch of different ways. Mm. Like what does it mean to meet somebody who knew you, thinks you're you, thinks you're the person they knew and hated you, you know, mm. um, you know, or to discover that you, what you were capable of last time you were in this body, you know, or, you know, what to discover that you're not just entering the world. You are a blank slate. But your your body isn't, <laughs> yeah. and people know kind of who you are. Not who you are, but the changing god isn't a secret. Castoffs aren't a secret. Mm. Like you're a known phenomena to everyone except yourself, which is a really interesting twist on the chosen one thing that games traditionally do. Yeah, and it's it's very kind of disempowering in a way. Uh, though you have all these abilities, you are a nobody in this world, really, because you bear the tattoo of being a castoff, so people recognise you as a castoff. But you 
there is enough room for you to claim that you just are still the changing god and in fact as you this is in the first hour you'll you'll walk through the doors into the city and there's a cult devoted to the changing god and you can totally go up to them and say i am the current living host i am the changing god and they will respond in kind and you get to really really mess with that idea and mess with the people around you using that idea it's um so actually maybe to um to talk about um to return to the idea of a a designed detailed space as opposed to a, mm. a hugely expansive one like um it's a it's quite it's a big game you know uh but it's not big in the way that people as a isometric like traditional old school rpg it's not pillars of eternity big it's not like Baldur's gate 2 big mm. where like there's just a vast amount of stuff to do and a vast amount of systems to engage with like it's not a sandbox RPG in the way the pillars is where you, if you want to make that game entirely about massaging party strategy for combat encounters or creating your own custom band of heroes who like Chris Livingston once did only use bears, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's that kind of RPG. This is a much more specifically honed narrative experience. And as such, it doesn't like take place over like a vast territory. Like, you know, if you played the early access version um, you know, in any case, your first hours of the game are spent in a, in a, a city called Sega's Cliffs, um, which is composed of about like, in a super old school sense, five screens, five or six. Yeah, like, yeah. My God, the amount of ideas it packs into yeah, the screen yeah. is just astonishing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's so good. Like, and so at first, if you did like a lap of it, it would mm. take you like five, 10 minutes and you'd be like, that's it. You know, like, yeah. if, as if, you know, you loaded up a sniper elite level expecting Far Cry, right? Mm. But what it manages to do is make like every fucking inch of those places actually matter and to net knit them together into like a spider web of decisions to affect each other. And I think that's probably where it, it, that's where it went from being like, I, I was going to be sympathetic because I love the setting, right? And I'm into what they're trying to do. But that was the moment where I was like, this isn't just like a good RPG that I'm familiar with in a setting I happen to like, but actually notably different yeah. to how other RPGs do things. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I spent 15 hours in the first five screens. At generally 15 hours. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't want to kind of give away what really happens there, but just, uh, to give a few to kind of lose concept, there's a, there's a bar full of psychics. There's, uh, there's a room where these strange ancient trees grow that people don't really understand them. But if you're in, if you're near them, then you can only hear the voice of the person next to you. You go in there, people are trading political secrets because it's an amazing place for diplomacy and backstabbing yeah. to happen. <laughs> uh, and and every every screen has like multiple a- aspects of this. And you, your companions kind of interact with diff- so many different NPCs and each other in so many different ways. And the the quests, like me, uh, you, Chris, and Andy Kelly on Beast Gamer, have just been talking about our experiences in that first city. And things just can go in so many different directions depending on the person you are and the kind of the tides that the tidal affinities you you kind of have uh, as you go into that yeah so it's worth explaining the tides because they're in the title they're not part of the pen and paper game Mm. so uh this is in a very simplistic way the best way to explain it is this is tides of numenera's version of a morality system um but it's very explicitly not a morality system Mm. um it is uh there are these forces that are um sort of uh there are forces in the world that are governed by not necessarily emotions, because emotion is kind of one of them, but like almost like aspects of the human psyche. Mm. So, um, and they're represented by colors. So the red tide is passion 
um, which could be lust or it could be anger, uh, you know, any sort of form of sort of strong kind of passionate emotion. Uh, there's the blue tide, which is sort of wisdom, curiosity. There's like a philosophical element as well as like a psychological element. It's almost like this way it goes beyond simply good and bad or like angry or calm mm. into like a mixture of aspects of the human psyche, but also aspects of kind of understanding what being conscious means hmm. and if that sounds like a very arch way of putting it and that puts you off don't play this game <laughs> yeah this game's all about <laughs> like, that kind of stuff yeah because uh, it's a lot of this uh, but very very well written and, and and really well executed um so for example the the gold tide is sort of selflessness and compassion hmm. but compassion specifically in the context of like giving of oneself um you know angrily defending someone you love is probably more red than gold even yeah. if you're that's the thing the, these you can express something using one of these tidal affinities, but depending on the context, you would more uh, view them differently in moral yeah. terms. Um, and it's a uh, very good engineering scenario as well. An interesting one is, is the indigo tide, which mm. is sort of, it's, it represents justice and equality, which you wouldn't think of as like psychological concepts. Like, oh, you know, but actually it, you, know, you can make the argument that they are, mm. that the notion of balance is a kind of, human psychological need the, the sense of a, you know there should be a greater level of fairness is a kind of philosophical reach yeah. on the part of individuals and that is sometimes aligned with compassion and selflessness mm. which is gold and sometimes directly opposed to it yeah and that's a really interesting like the notion of forgiveness is a gold idea not a purple one even though purple is about justice mm. so you have like different angles on what's right um folded up in these different quite complicated tides like silver is the tide of sort of fame and regard hmm. and you can do something that you think will be in my characters ended up very highly gold aligned um uh, for a couple of decisions that i made um but there are times when i've kind of said the thing that i thought this is only going to increase my kind of gold affinity hmm. and said so like don't worry get back guys i'll handle this like i can do this and suddenly silver is surging. And that's because the thing I've done is not really selfless so much as, well, it is, it's selfless, but it's also like pointedly self-aggrandizing. <laughs> right. <laughs> you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Like as soon as, as soon as like, um, um, you know, pursuing selflessness gets over into actually, yeah, I might be the Messiah. <laughs> um, that's when you start to tip over into silver. And yeah. none of these things are bad necessarily yeah, or good. True. It's just, and then, and it's very good at engineering scenarios that make you challenge the way you've been approaching things. Mm. And also, um, having characters, uh, I think there's a character you haven't met yet, but there was one character in particular who does a, um, it's just a beautifully written philosophical conversation. Hmm. Uh, and she does an amazing job of putting you to the question a little bit when it comes to why are you doing the things you're doing? They're probably easy questions to answer if you're just a dickhead. Right. <laughs> and that game gives you that freedom. Yeah, for sure. Um, but like, I find it genuinely like thought provoking as a person who was, not lazily role playing the kind of the chatty character who ultimately does well by everybody, but like I was sailing into every scenario in order to save everybody involved. Mm. And eventually I got to the point where someone put me to the question on that a bit. And that was genuinely just a great bit of, of writing. I'm currently uh, sort of, <laughs> I'm tideless in the sense that the game has put me into uh, it puts you into an affinity based on your responses in conversations. So it will kind of say, oh, you've gained a little bit of gold here or a little bit of silver there or blue. Um, and I've currently been so scatological with my approach to this that it, I'm in between all the tides. <laughs> and therefore a person of 
nothing but perhaps everything yeah <laughs> but that's a good thing is being neutral is not you're not neutral planet man no right? like no. it just means you're kind of demonstrating lots of different human traits in different directions yeah because they're not ultimately like contradictory yeah that's you can be angry and selfless you can be um you can be selfless and um you know prideful mm. like like they're they can combine interesting ways and those are used to inform a kind of basic level like how characters treat you mm. they also have a much bigger role in the plot um and that's sort of just like a small part of it like there's it it really gets it's a it's a very reedy game oh, i yeah. do a lot of reading yeah a lot of reading which i mean the writing is fantastic the, the only reason I'd, i think any of us would put up with it if it's you know yeah if the writing wasn't up to, to snuff it it would just be a disaster because the whole game is about reading huge amounts of text and conversation trees. yeah every little trinket you pick up has mm. not only a description but might trigger a little adventure in your brain if you look yeah at it. i think one of the things i love about the setting uh in this particular game is the way that it's so kind of obsessed with internal space and i mean your kind of your character's got a, a literal mind palace pretty much where you, you know the your inner person is represented as a level that gains bits as you discover more about yourself uh but also just as you're kind of going around the place and examining things a lot of these objects are about manipulating your mind and pulling you into different memories and different places and uh, it's one of those areas where a game about reading and, and interacting with text like genuinely pulls you in as a player in that way if you understand like you're, you're, as you're reading about these kind of this incredible kind of myspi experience of being pulled into a, a crystal and seeing memories you're you're also being drawn by the very you know process of reading into your own inner self to yeah. realize that and that, that there's a sense that you go there's a flow to the game where you go into those spaces and then when it spits you out again you sort of pop back into the world and it it feels as though you have actually kind of gone in gone somewhere and come back again uh, it's very it's very very good writing it is the I think you're right that it is a game about interior spaces. Like when we talk about it having a small number of zones that it gets a lot out of, it really does make everything work. And it does a lot of it through text. Like Titan of Era's weakness is probably its visuals mm. and its art, right? Like yeah. some of it is great. There are areas, particularly later in the game, that are amazing to look at. Yeah. And I think because they feature in some of the earliest art, I think they're probably the things that people are most inspired by. Um, and there are areas that don't look great really and there are animations that are very stiff and and you know there's there i think the danger uh, i said this in my review with any game that um has this much reading and this many huge ideas that are you know um beyond the scope of presentation a lot of the time anyway hmm. and that it particularly is based on a very improvisational and very kind of literary um pen and paper game is it falls into occasionally does fall into the trap of it tells you things that are amazing rather than showing you them yeah and games do have an opportunity to show you things, right? That's the thing that is good mm, about games. That's true. And it doesn't always live up to that. I think that's probably the, the root of my only problem with it, really. Mm. Like, I think it would be one of the best games ever if its presentation matched how good its ideas are. Yeah. But it feels like a very good use of an extremely talented writing team. Mm. In the same way that arguably Fallen London is as well, and Sun of the Sea, which I think is actually one of the other good comparisons with this. For sure. Because those are also games about just stories. This is much better because it is fundamentally a better game. Mm. Um, and also because it is more focused. It's not trying to also be like a, an online role-playing game or like trying to be a kind of roguelike rogue kind yeah. of thing. Mm. It is just a story that you play through where sure. your, your choices branch out and do different things. Mm. Have you, how do you find the, the actual kind of the systems of it? Because it adapts the, the pen and paper role-playing 
system mm. uh, for the first time. Um, and that, that pen and paper system is a rejection of Dungeons and Dragons, really. And Dungeons and Dragons is like the basis of every other computer RPG ever made. Yeah. How did you find it in terms of... So, yeah, to, to b- kind of briefly explain it, there are, there are three kind of uh, ability pools you have. And uh, they they reflect different aspects of your character. So Indigo, I believe, is... I know, is that science and kind of... So then, actually, charismatic. the fact that it's Indigo is unrelated to okay. the Indigo Tide. Yes. So yeah. it's Might, Intellect, and Speed, okay. which are red, purple, and yellow in the game. But they, they're just Might, Intellect, and Speed. Uh, so you've got Might, Intellect, and Speed. And obviously, Might is used in combat encounters. And you have a certain... Each character has a certain number of pips for each value. And if you're trying to persuade someone, you'll be spending a certain number of points of intellect to increase the chance of persuading them. Uh, so if your character has a large pool of intellect, say like 10 points, you can spend four in one conversation to 100% persuade someone. And the next conversation, you could spend it again um, until you're depleted. But And being depleted uh, it doesn't hurt you, which it does in the role-playing yeah, game. Yeah, it's bad in the role-playing game. Um, but it does stop you from exporting those opportunities in future until you either use an item that replenishes that pool or you go to sleep yeah and move the game on to the next day and uh, there is actually a, a time thing going on in this game like if you sleep quest can move on uh that uh kind of puppy you left dangling on the edge of the well is going to have fallen in that kind of stuff you know yeah if there are perilous situations that will yeah, involve they will it's you know. worth if you play it it's worth not only going in going blind but also go in having suspended some of your sense of game logic mm. Um, because I know that I know that a few people have been caught a cropper by the fact that it pays attention. If you go to sleep and you left something important dangling, mm. like that's not a good idea. You shouldn't have gone to sleep. Yeah. Whereas you might think that's a kind of neutral action because it's the game, but it's yeah. not. Many games uh, <laughs> threaten you with imminent consequences and then, you know, don't actually press you on that. Uh, the problem with this system for me was that it basically meant I had to go and have a nap all the time in order to mm. play the game like instinctively you game it so you want to have your pool f- as full as possible at all times uh, so i'd end up just going to the inn every kind of five minutes because you don't you never know when you're going to get pulled into a long uh you know long quest line particularly if you can get sucked into an object and go into a memory and then yeah. actually have to make a lot of decisions using a lot of pool points uh, so i'd end up just going back to the inn to spend 20 shins to sleep constantly and uh, you know, that just felt like gaming it. It didn't feel like it mattered. Your characters, your companions, you can use their health pools as well, their attribute pools. But their, the strengths and weaknesses of their pools didn't matter either because I felt ultimately as long as I rested enough, they were all at max pools and I just had loads of, you know, right. points. Uh, and it just, it didn't create interesting decisions. It just created the annoyance of having to constantly re- refill the pools. It, it, it fights some logic in that actually some quests like often failing one of those checks, like a persuasion check. Uh, Cause it's worth specifying that like, it's not like each, each stat is used for different things and each of them has combat and non-combat applications. Combat is completely optional. Yeah. Might, which is, yeah, it's might or speed might be like punching or stabbing, but they're also climbing and lifting and mm. grabbing. And you know, there's, <coughs> there are a lot of reasons to want to do those things. Um, outside of that context, um, the notion is that you should, you know, the, the, the basic difficulty of the thing you're trying to do is set by the skills you already have. So if you're good at persuading, it's already higher chance of success. And then if you choose to spend the pools that you're effectively risking, you're, you're sacrificing some of your pools, um, to spend effort. It's called spending effort in the RPG as well. That's the idea. It's like, you know, it's like my baseline chance of succeeding at this, if I'm not really trying is 60%. But if I try, it's 80%. 
and that takes some of my sort of intellect away for mm. a while not my actual you know i mean it takes some of my kind of um, mental energy for the day yeah um i really love that system i think it's really elegant um i think one of the problems is it's designed at a basic level it's designed for a game where the pace is set by a gm not by a player because mm. the player's instinct is i want to get to the end of the quest line now i don't want to risk consequences if i go to sleep yeah i i want to um i want to get i want to finish this zone now before i go to sleep whereas um in the pen and paper game a reactive gm can ensure that players only find themselves under pressure with their pools when it's interesting so because resting and stuff works slightly differently in the pen and paper game but it's probably the same idea right is that you get exhausted for the day and you're not really capable of doing very much more so maybe it makes sense to sleep or have a break or whatever and then your character is refreshed for the next set of challenges and if the players somehow burn through all their pools the gm and, and it's not going to be fun to throw something at them the gm is the person who makes that decision the next day, next part of whatever the adventure is doesn't happen because there's a human being there kind of massaging it or maybe it's interesting that they then have to solve a problem but they're all exhausted yeah and that's part of the story the issue is with this is it's the same system but the player is the person determining what they want to try and do so it maybe encourages you to game it Absolutely, by, yeah. yeah and i don't know if it quite reconciles that. i don't think it's, i don't think it's a deal-breaking issue it's a great game but no no it hasn't affected my enjoyment of the game to be honest it's just been a, become a minor annoyance i, I think that uh it is about gaming it, but I, I, I'm not sure what the alternative would be for them. I mean, there has to be some sort of restriction on, you know, uh, you shouldn't be able to perform at your maximum capacity all the time. I think that the problem the game has is that it doesn't explain enough that failing those checks is as interesting often as succeeding it as those tries. checks. Bless it, it, it tries. It does but try. Like, it feels like you're never going to convince a game player. That, that... No, that's the thing. You, you could, uh, all games are going to come with this preconceived idea of they want to win every encounter. Yeah. So, I mean, I explain this with like a first minute spoiler, mm. not really even a spoiler. The way it tries to introduce this is really nice and it's a very elegant idea. The very first thing you do in the game that involves expending effort, the when it teaches you to expend effort, is you need to move a big bowl under a drippy thing. <laughs> I want to tell you the context of that. Um, if you succeed, you move the big bowl under the drippy thing. And this, because space magic, lights up the room that you're in. Um, if you fail that first check, which is just a might check to push a big bowl, uh, your character cuts their hand and blood goes into the pool uh, along with the drippy thing. And this means that the light the room lights up red mm. instead. And it just makes, it changes one room in the game um, for the duration that you're in it the very very beginning of the game and it is explicitly there and even tells you a little tooltip this is you know it, it, it is there to demonstrate we are willing to run with the things that go wrong as well as the things that go right um that i mean there are times where you can die and you have to load a save but there are also times where you can fail quite badly and it just takes you in a different direction it does bottleneck it doesn't quite match up to something they said very very early on which is that every death would be kind of factored in mm. I don't think I don't think they solved that problem. I think that was maybe too ambitious. Yeah, but they got a lot of the rest of the way. They got far closer than the rest of most of the RPGs. Mm. Like fucking up is just another part of the story, and so you have to go in almost with the discipline to say, "I'm going to accept what happens." Mm. Like when we have all been having those conversations about what happened to us in the first ten fifteen hours, um, we've all gotten to different places with it. You know, we've all like we've all different things have happened. There are quest lines I didn't finish because I couldn't figure them out. That like Andy explained to me how to figure out. Yeah. But then I realized that like, oh man, I, I would love to have seen how that resolves. But also the thing it turns out you have to do is not something that I felt my character would do. 
you know so maybe that's something for another playthrough right like i want to i'm playing as a sort of quite thoughtful character that's constantly looking for knowledge and trying to act selflessly i've also played it as an asshole really like who isn't doesn't has no qualms about killing people and just you know and and doesn't isn't interested in making friends and just wants to look after themselves and it supports that fully um and neither of those approaches see everything and neither of those approaches really kind of win it's not like mass effect where like paragon shepherd is going to get everything done perfectly yeah without sacrifice it feels like everywhere i'm making choices that that limit the scope of my particular playthrough and that's what's good about it but if you're like if you need to do everything perfectly and you want to quick load every time something goes wrong you'd you'd going to get a skewed version of of that game i think hmm. nonetheless even if even if you are trying to game it and just kind of playing it instinctively it is just a such a great world and such a well-written adventure and such a kind of uh so much brilliant quest design in there uh, that I, th- I think it is if you like that sort of game you absolutely yeah it's a must something that i would interested in knowing from from you or is that whether or not you felt that it lacked kind of impetus because one mm. thing it's very short on relative to most of the rpgs is a main quest with very clear objectives yeah um there is one but it's not it's very abstract to you in the way that a lot of the world is very abstract to you <laughs> yeah like uh you know like you got to stop something bad happening, but the parameters of that are not like everything in Numenera. It's, it's highly like, it's like 16 different kind of mad sci-fi story prompts packed into one idea. Mm. So it doesn't, it's not, it, it doesn't have, it's like, it doesn't have like a clear, it doesn't open with like a clear villain no. that you have to chase through space, right? Like that's not mass, that's mass effect. Um, did you feel that at all? Because my thing, like I, I know roughly where you are in the game. And I don't think you've even gotten to the bit where you find out what the story's about yet. <laughs> uh, and to be honest, no, I've, I've not minded it at all, which is unusual because, um, I like things to get to the point normally. But I think the, I think the, the kind of concepts it introduces you to, and I think it introduces you to the, co- the underlying concepts that world runs on incredibly well through just experiential quest, uh, stuff. Uh, and just kind of getting stuck into those little short stories has been absolutely fascinating, especially mm. it's because, because the those environments were so dense, you can move across one screen, and it doesn't matter necessarily that you don't have a villain to chase. You've already kind of had your interest piqued by three or four different things. They're, they're already like hooks all over the place just to drag you into little stories. And I think I, I've been pulled into the kind of minutiae of that in just the first five screens, and followed that through just because the stories are so interesting, the world's so good, and I've I've not missed the the grand villain or the big stakes at all mm. uh, and i'm looking forward to them in, unveiling themselves i've just got to the the first new area and that's a very different type of place to the first area as well um and i can't wait until that stuff's introduced but I, it, unusually i think it actually sustains itself really well mm. that's that. one thing i guess one last thing i really wanted to praise it for um kind of touched on this earlier when it talked about kind of like what we just did that it's kind of all side quest in a way yeah but something it does um and one of the reasons it uses one of the ways in which it uses those smaller spaces so efficiently and i wish every fucking game would do this is it uses mo- the same characters in multiple plot lines in intelligent ways mm. like um that most talking about breaking out of traditional game logic 
most games where you understand what the side quest is, whether that's The Witcher or Mass Effect or, or whatever, um, or, or even Pillars, you go into a city, you kind of itemize all the people and all of the people in the city, all the NPCs are going to be, you know, they're bonded by storylines that are, you know, from one to another. But each of those pathways is like pretty linear. Like this person sends you to this person and they are looking for that person. You find that person and you go back to person A from person C. And person A, B and C in that story will never interact with person X, Y and Z in a different story. Hmm. Um, like you kind of resolve that pattern until you kind of know what everyone's for and the kind of, you pick up maybe multiple quests on one way, but you never really like talk to the same people in different contexts, right? Once you've done someone's quest, yeah, they kind of say, thank you for finding my dog. <laughs> Every time you talk to them for the rest of time, they stop, right? They kind of, you delete them from kind of existence by finishing their stuff. And that's how like literally every fucking RPG works. Yeah, absolutely. Apart from Torment, where they smartly reuse characters. So, um, like, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm de deliberately cutting around spoilers, but I can give a very abstract explanation of this in that there are, there's like, there's a group of orphans in, Saga's Cliffs. There are kids around. Hmm. And there are multiple, there are three or four quests that um, sort of affect the lives of that group of kids in completely different ways. And there are parts of those quests that are totally unrelated to each other. And there are parts of those quests that are intricately related to each other. And often it's up to you to intuit the connections. Um, and I know that sounds super vague, but what it means is that you get this kind of weird feeling of the game being far more organic than you expect an RPG to be when, you know, the, you know, you'll be told like, Oh, you know, I, I, this is actually, I'm making this up. So this isn't a spoiler. Oh, you know, someone saw a, a little orphan kid running away from that fire. And the traditional game logic says you go looking for the orphan you haven't met yet, because that's the one that's going to be related to this quest line mm. rather than the orphan who was related to the last quest line. Yeah. In Torment, you go and talk to the orphans you already know. And the chances are, they might have been involved. They might be the people you're looking for. However, because you already interacted with them in a different context, a very different context, maybe they needed to find some beans. And you were a dickhead and you threw the beans in the sea. These these are not things that happen in Torment Heads of <laughs> Era. But suddenly, you're not getting help in this other quest because you've got a reputation from the last quest you did for with, that happened to touch upon their lives. Sure, yeah. And, you know, and so it's almost like some people are the start and the ends of quests. Some people are the middle points of quests. And sometimes they're both in different contexts. And so you enter this sort of densely and connected six screens and kind of whichever node you choose to tug on first determines the start of your path through this maze of sort of choices and consequences. And that's why it ends up so different. Like when, when I went to play it for the second time, because I reviewed it on Xbox as well, I sort of ran in completely opposite direction to the way I'd gone the first time. And talk to someone completely different. Mm. And that changed loads because suddenly the people who know me as the dickhead who went and beat up that guy for no reason. You know, like yeah. that, that is one of the reasons about his design that feels so kind of rad to me. Like it's very few games use characters in that way because it makes them feel more like characters. Suddenly you find yourself like, Oh, I need, I need some help from a psychic. Who do I know? Rather than, yeah, rather than 
are there any psychics I haven't spoken to? Because they'll be the ones that... Yeah, and it'll be a named psychic. You'll be like, you need to speak to this particular guy, which means you have to go into this cave full of kobolds, and then yeah. he will be in there, rather than go to the place where the psychics are hanging out, mm. getting wasted. Yeah, and there's loads of there's loads of instances of... um, Like, I know that, like, Andy and I solved some problems in completely different ways, yeah. but without but, but beyond this, this, the um, traditional kind of logic of asshole way, pragmatic way jesus way which mm. is the kind of rpg things we just had different interpretations of how to handle stuff and that just took us in different directions and he did things i didn't even know you could do <laughs> like uh I've, I've got a story about some robot children not sure whether i, sh- I won't say it, no I, I think it might spoil some stuff yeah um yeah i love that story though but we'll tell it in a few weeks i think i think yeah other than a few weeks i don't know if it's such a dense game that i don't know if, if it supports a spoiler pod like, <laughs> yeah. i thought about it but like it's there's so much to it that a, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Yeah. But also, I, f- I feel like someone could even play it through and kind of not want stuff they didn't see spoiled for sure, them. Sure, sure. But like, yeah, I, I would like, yeah. Yeah, let's like on, the, the, on the, the side of caution for this one, I think. Stay on the side of caution. Um, if you feel stuck or I tweeted this today, but I would reiterate it. Uh, I was, you know, we, we got access to the final game quite early and I had probably not a very different game, but like, I remember the experience that people recounted of playing Dark Souls for the first time as mm-hmm. reviewers where no one knew anything about it. No one knew who From Software were, really, apart from some really hardcore fans of Japanese role-playing games. And there were no guides, and no one knew what the fuck they were doing. Mm. And so that was like, you know, you know, journalists talking to each other to try and help them through these challenges. And the, it, it was the, the ideal way to encounter the, the mystery of that game for the first time. Numenera is a totally different game, because it's not a challenge in the same way. You're not mm. going to need help in the same way. Um, but... Um, one of the nice things about playing it in that context was there, there are no guides. There are no FAQs to consult because you will get stuck. You will not know how to progress in a plot line to the extent that I, uh, at one point did think that some things had bugged out, but I just hadn't, I hadn't thought about it the right way. Right. Um, and what I would say is, you know, there are going to be guides everywhere in, in only a couple of days, probably, probably even by the time you listen to this, don't use them. Yeah. Like if you feel stuck, just do something else and persevere with the game in a different direction. Like see where it takes you. Do what's logical to you. Mm. Don't like go find out how do I win this quest. It's because it, it, it's not, it's not a kind of opportunity about being powerful in the same way that an object like Pillars of Eternity is where you want good armor and good weapons and really efficient builds. It's just not about that at all. It really is a genuine role playing game. In yeah. That sense. It is. It really is. Um, like you have to you have to want what it's offering which Mm. is a sort of densely written very sort of you know philosophically ambitious story that wants you to role play it and wants you to engage with it seriously um like i know from running the pen and paper game that often pen and paper rpgs become slapstick because that's how people are hmm. but this isn't a game that necessarily supports that it's not funny that's one thing it isn't yeah, reliable true. there are good jokes in it there hmm. are jokes in it it's not all deadpan um it doesn't have like um more the flying skull like the original torment did yeah, yeah. you know to kind of offer a bit of levity it is like everybody you meet is going to have something to tell you about fucking nanomachines time <laughs> transfer of consciousness you know the perils of knowing how causality works in your own particular case whatever it is right like mm. everyone's gonna have something to tell you about that um 
and you kind of got to be ready for that. But uh, yeah, if if that is what you are after, I think it's hmm. genuinely fucking Fantastic. great. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be great to have that sort of all wrapped up, and then suddenly Mass Effect. <laughs> yeah, a very different experience. But yeah, definitely. I, I, I'm looking forward to kind of really rinsing this for all this hardcore stuff and then go and shoot some fucking aliens. <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, I think I kind of, I'm more, I, I'm ready for some kind of, I'm ready for some fucking like sexy, accessible Canadian space adventure <laughs> time yeah. after this. Yeah. Cause I've had to use my, I've had to use my brain a lot mm. and it's, it's time maybe for the heart, you know, <laughs> my heart wants, my heart wants spaceships yeah. and coming out of war. Birdman romance. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, but you know, genuinely is like, I think the best thing about, you know, Numenera, maybe to, to, to wrap up this discussion, um, is that it's genuinely like a great collection of sci-fi stories, you know, like if it wasn't anything else, it's just this big bag of little story ideas that stick in your brain and you can continue to think about. Sure. Um, what does it mean to be the, the mo- only the most recent occupant of your body? What does it mean that there are lives like yours happening everywhere? Right? Like, like, has any of it, has any of it like leaked into real life for you at all? Like in terms of thinking about those ideas and trying to, and because it's a game full of sort of believable people, but sort of unbelievable situations, trying to imagine what it would actually be like to be in those kinds of situations well absolutely i mean it's uh, as far as role-playing goes it's all about kind of especially between in that world where reality is completely into one another and you're living multiple strands of multiple lives you know entwined by memory yeah indeed like knowing that your decisions are only like sort of one possible path and like a branching not only just within the context of the story but in the context of your kind of route through the game mm. right like i don't know this it's, it's an obvious thing in some ways but it's a strange thing to be kind of confronted with the reality of it like I'll put it this way, right? Like, we are we are recording episode 178 of The Great and Crowbar. But somewhere there is a version of this timeline where Marsh didn't go to Sweden, or where Tom didn't bugger off the Valve, or where even just Pip didn't go away for, to DDC for a week, yeah, right? Indeed, yeah. Yeah, like, or where this is a totally different episode of The Great and Crowbar happening in a, in a completely different context uh with voices that we haven't heard on for ages mm. or you know a completely different set of perspectives and uh you know a better or worse recording equipment based on the you know whether or not we did the patreon or just having to have the stuff like mm. it's you know it kind of i mean who would even know what that would sound like a very special episode of the Quake and Crowbar. Special because we are in America and I'm here and Marsh is here. Hello. And is also here. Hello. <laughs> uh, we're at GDC. Uh, GDC has not started yet recording us on, oh yeah, I was supposed to say the date, 26th of February 2017. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't have a pod number necessarily because we don't know if it's going to replace the pod. Yeah. So consider this a supplementary pod, <laughs> special supplementary pod. You are now with... entering the numberless void of pod space. <laughs> to which both Tom and I have been doomed since we've <laughs> We've yeah. been trying to get out ever since. 
<laughs> just recording thoughts week after week. <laughs> Don't know where to send yeah, them. Yeah. Don't know how to organise them. Every Tuesday, I them. drink a bottle of whiskey and I say my thoughts into my room. But <laughs> nothing listening, comes to it. No <laughs> so sad. But we're back now. Not forever, but just for today. Yes. Yep. Sorry, we don't have whiskey. That's that was an oversight on my part. <laughs> I'm kind of glad because I'm going to party later, and then every other night is also a very alcohol themed mm. <laughs> event. I managed to almost not drink last night, but I still did. Almost. Yeah, <laughs> that's as far as I accidentally like walked into a whiskey and coke. Or I, something. I ordered a cocktail. That, I thought there was like a non-alcoholic cocktail section, and there was a sort of something between the non-alcoholic and the alcoholic cocktail sections, and I ordered that. <laughs> And then it turned out to be a sort of like Mexican shandy that had mango mm-hmm. and Corona in it. Oh wow, that sounds really nice. That's okay. kind of nice. <laughs> it, it, it tasted too much of Corona, and so uh, you couldn't help thinking you're drinking a beer with something in it. <laughs> <laughs> a delicious fusion of all these flavors. Uh, and then also, I had to drink. Uh, well, I, I didn't have to drink the first gin and tonic. That was voluntary. That was peer pressure. <laughs> and the second gin and tonic, I did have to drink because the person who was drinking it left. <laughs> That's the rules. You, you don't make the rules in the void. Yeah, that's how it goes. I'm imagining this Corona shandy thing as like you know those um, you know when you get a uh, like a sole or something in the UK and it's got like the lime sliver, oh, like yeah. it's got oh. just a mango balanced on top, and someone's like <laughs> desperately trying to jam it in the neck of the bottle. <laughs> Cramming the mango in your Corona is your pod title. <laughs> Anyway, if we don't how say anything are you else both? <laughs> I'm good. I've been at Valve, uh, seeing a whole bunch of things that I can't possibly say anything about. <laughs> so just to head that off at the pass. Um, but I've been working on uh, my game still, Heat Signature, and uh, doing it in their office. So I have a wheelie desk. I got nice. to. I didn't actually get to wheel my desk anywhere, but um, uh, I'm also working with a programmer, John. Um, Yet another John. Our team is now John, 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 and Tom. (laughs) (laughs) But John Winder is our new programmer, and um, he's working there with me. And he didn't have a desk, so we got to go and get a desk from the and wheel it into the elevator and do the whole valve thing of a desk moving from one place to another. Was it being followed by someone saying, That's my desk, you jerks! (laughs) We we did have to just like move multiple people around without their permission um, and unplug their PCs without being able to shut them down or anything. Oh, wow. Like, this wasn't my decision. I was like, mm, do it goes down. Yeah, they'll be fine with it. It's, it's cool. <laughs> How about you, Marsh? Do you have wheelie desks over at Mojang? No, we have adjustable height desks. Mojang? Well, there's some debate Mojang? about that. Because it, there is, it's a pun on a, a Swedish word, which is actually Mojang, which has yeah. the A but with a, a, an umlaut over it. But we don't have the umlaut. So there's some debate about whether it's actually an anglicised word or a made-up word <laughs> rather than Mojang, which means like... Dubri or gadget or what's it? Mm. Okay, I didn't know. So that. you can pronounce it either way. That's interesting. But some people are very, very hardcore. This is Mojang, oh, really? and uh, and you know wow. some people pronounce it. Mojang. Well, I suppose it's otherwise really you can't trivia. have mo- Mojangsters. <laughs> no, it would be Mojangsters. And Mojangsters less... doesn't sound quite as good. Mojangsters, no. yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, no, it's good. It's good there. Uh, I'm working on uh, Minecraft, which is a game everybody knows about. So. Uh, and there's, there's there's cool stuff as well, but you know. It's good. Mm. It's right. I enjoyed yeah. the tile sets of recent times. Mm, <laughs> yes. 
Yes, they went down very well. It's uh, it's, it's slightly weird predicting what people are going to latch onto and be obsessed about because you, we'll release like in a a patch which has loads and loads of big gameplay updates and there's all these kind of cool features and there'll be complete silence about it relatively and then you'll put llamas in the game and people will just lose their fucking mind. It's great. You, there was, well, I went to Minecon last year and yeah. there, was, there was literally like screams of adulation when, when we announced llamas on stage. People were getting wow. up on their seats and applauding and it's like, okay, it's good. Could you like, could you like llamas, I guess. That's cool. I remember when I went to see... Um... Ghost Recon Wildlands at E3 two years ago, hmm. so it wasn't playable. It was just like footage on a screen or whatever. Doesn't have alpacas. Well, they well they were talking about this, and then they were saying I think they called them llamas. I don't know whether they were actually correct or not. Hmm. Um, but they they just sort of said, and you can't ride the llamas, and that's all I wrote down through the entire session, and then did a sad face, <laughs> and that's just my notebook from that that day. <laughs> So people care, Marsh. People yeah. really care. <laughs> they do. You can ride... No, can you ride the llamas? You can lead the llamas. Maybe you can ride the llamas. Do you have llama saddles? That yeah, would you, answer your question. Uh, you have. Surely. You can put rugs on, on <gasps> the llamas and you can customise the rugs so you can dress up your llamas when you, you can have camels. The camels aren't in the game yet. Mm. Maybe one day, though. Maybe one day. Aww. Who knows? I'd, I'd play again if there were camels, just saying. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you could just put a word in. <laughs> I think it, camels would be hard because they've got the humps and you've got quite limited resolution to <laughs> structure the shape of something in Minecraft. I would it be just like one mini cube like, yeah. on its back? It's just like a horse with a cube. <laughs> Yeah, I can suggest the feature to, to Jens, uh, who's the lead creative. He's, he's a really nice man, and whenever I suggest features to him, he has this kind of... So he switches to his tolerance face. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think he gets requests quite a lot of the time, so we'll, we'll put that on the list. <laughs> Next to toilets and machine guns. Next to... What are these cameras going to be doing? <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> yeah, the reason we're all here is because of GDC. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's exciting to be here not as a journalist, because I literally yeah. get to go and just absorb stuff without having to write any of it down. Was your do first non-journo trip? Uh, well, other than Minecon, yeah, I guess so. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. I'm, I temporarily am a journalist. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, we're going to write about some talks on PC Gamer while I'm here. Cool. Um, but what talks are you folks looking forward to? I'm, there are a fair few on the eSports day, which I believe is Tuesday that I'm looking forward to. Um, there's uh, T.L. Taylor's talk, I think, about community, um, and I just really like pretty much everything that she and her organisation, AnyKey, do that's always super interesting. So um, I am looking forward to that. And also I think Tuesday is the board game design day. So, and just before we started, I was saying that I was excited about the, um, I think there's one about the psychology of loss aversion in relation to board games, and that just sounded mm. really potentially interesting, so I figured, <laughs> like, that's got a big red circle around it. Um, but yeah, and other things were just, like, a bit more that you would assume I would go to like The Art of Abzu which is hands down the oh, best yeah. thing about that game oh and... I didn't didn't see that no yeah I? I think that one's on the Friday ah, and then on Wednesday morning there's I think there's one about the art of Old Man's Journey 
which is a really good looking game so yeah like there's a fair few of those it's not the one that looks like it's drawing chalk or pet crayon or something they're constantly no there's the one that looks like um like it's got a similar art style to sort of old french sort of illustrations of children's storybooks or like rich warm colors and it's kind of like um or like dixit or something uh, hills going off into the horizon Mm -hmm. and the weird the sort of quirk of the game is you can walk from one hill to one that it's crossing in the background. Oh, sort of yeah. Background so you can like warp the terrain a bit and like bring hills up so that you can go to the one mm. like behind it, it in the layering. Is I it think. going to PC? Uh, I well, if it's not, I shouldn't have been writing about it on PS. <laughs> so uh... <laughs> I think those, it's, some guys did like secrets of Reticon, right? I think the so. Bird, the bird carrying a boulder one. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. I think so. Like, I, I think I hadn't played any of their previous games when I looked, so might well, because I haven't played that. But, um, yeah, but the, the artwork for that is so lovely. Um, mm. So I figured I would go to that. I can send you my list if you'd like, because uh, your ears have been pricking up <laughs> yeah. with everything that I mentioned. Um, how about you guys? What are you going to? I'll go... Uh, the, I can't really remember any of the things I take. I'm going to lots of story-based uh, lectures, but I think the one... There's a there's a sort of post-mortem on Brigador, mm. uh, which is interesting. I think we covered it on the pod ages and ages ago because uh, Jack Monaghan, who's one of the lead developers on it, actually came to visit Bath yeah. and we went out and hung around with him. He's a really nice guy and the game is really cool. He plays sort of like... I mean, it's sort of retro-looking, and that it's mm. all pre-rendered uh, isometric pixel art. But I think they they use like um, they can kit batch three D models to produce the the things that they then spit out as two D sprites. But it looks amazing. Like the lighting in it is incredible, and they do all these kind of really cool tricks where, even though it's sprite based, they somehow manage to render shadows that look like they're being produced by Fulsome models. Anyway, all that stuff is cool. But it's a great stompy, shooty. Uh, isometric mech game you're just fucking raising cityscapes basically and it didn't sell at all and uh, one of the reasons I think it might have not sold is because it had a disastrous release strategy which which we, we said that, it's like how do we should we sell this game we're like well don't do the thing that you're going to do and you're like no we think I think we'll do that anyway and uh, uh, which was to I think they had they kind of did a dual release so they did a green light green light release which okay got some kind of small amount of press mm. but then when it actually released fully nobody then recovered it because they felt like it was old news oh, and okay. that's my speculation but uh, I'll be interested to see what other things happened during the, the, the process of that because it does feel like that that game should have got more attention than it did I just think in, just in terms of the sort of things that gamers generally are drawn to well, that game ticks a lot of the boxes and yeah it was pretty, pretty quiet on it mm. I am looking forward to the Deus Ex postmortem mm-hmm. which Warren Spector is going to give um, and uh, I'm hopefully going to meet him this week because I'm part of a round table thing that he's also on uh, I've never met him before <laughs> one of the creators of my favourite games oh. I had one of my most disastrous interviews as a journalist with Warren Spector <laughs> yeah. have I told you this on the podcast before? I don't think so what happened? I haven't heard it well I was playing I was there to cover Epic Mickey Okay. Uh, I think it was the first one, and uh, I can't remember. The, I, I can't remember. The, I think we started before we started interviewing before I got to play it. But 
Um, it was a really hostile interview. Like, I've never had somebody who instantly, obviously hated me. Oh um, I don't know quite why, but I was, uh, like, occasionally I think, did it really go that badly? And then I look at the, the transcript again, I'm just like, wow, that's, <laughs> and the thing is, obviously in the transcript, I'm really fucking needling him as well. And it, I think he started out, I think he started out, oh, so you write for Edge? Oh yeah, they used to be good, or something oh like that. Oh my god. And, uh, and it really went downhill, and it was really kind of, <laughs> Bitchy and snipey interview, and then and then I got to play the game in front of him, and the the game was fucking broken. Like the camera, the three D camera in it, okay. as you were making one of the first jumps in the game, spins kind of like oh, made yeah. like a weird number of degrees. And I didn't, it wasn't clear to me whether the controls were then relative to your view or yeah. whether they remained the same. And so I kept on missing this jump, and it was like a really trivial jump. And he he just got up and said, "I'm going to go for lunch." <laughs> so he left. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was it was pretty humiliating. Uh, wow. So I don't know if he's a complete asshole or not. But I, I've met lots of people who've who've worked for him and say he's a lovely, lovely man. So, well, yeah, I don't know. Jury's out. One of my worst interviews was also Dare Set related, uh, but it wasn't anything. Uh, wasn't at all the fault of the interviewer. Uh, interviewee, sorry, uh, it wasn't at all the fault of the interviewer. Me. <laughs> um, it was uh, Human Revolution and the first press trip for it and they did what I think is a really cool thing like they showed us the game and then just we had like a whole afternoon just interviewing all of the creative leads like the lead artist the lead sound designer the lead um, game designer that that was kind of the problem the game designer uh, director and uh, I think maybe creative director and so there's like three of them where I don't really know what the differences between those roles are <laughs> and so like weirdly the sound designer you know I did an interview about sound design with no um no prep time really and uh, that ended up going really well because we just kind of like we just ended up being a rambling conversation um, uh, but the game design ones like I know things about this topic and I know what I want to ask and then I asked it all of the first guy <laughs> and then I had some more to ask of the second guy and then the third guy and I'm like ah, I don't know <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah I just I got got to the point where I realised I've just asked the same question twice in a row <laughs> I just asked him exactly what I just asked him a minute ago because so I couldn't remember because I'd asked the same question to other people and I couldn't remember if it was him or the last person oh, no. was it was actually it wasn't like a disastrous interview it was just really embarrassing <laughs> because it looked like I wasn't paying attention like I didn't care what he was saying and actually it was just my brain was fried from doing a very similar task three times in a row what's Spectre doing now? Um, his company is Other Side I see in the GDC schedule, but that's all I know. Because hmm. he was, wasn't he just lecturing until recently? Like, he's a mm. full time. Yeah, I teaching. think so. Huh. What are you covering for PC Gamer, or is that more just like up to you? Yeah, it's going to be whatever um, uh, whatever takes my fancy um, as I go and see things. And it tends to be things that um, I go to stuff that I think probably journalists won't go to, like the AI Summit and okay. things like that. So last year I read about. Um, a bug that they had when making Battlefield 2 where um, medics would all try and uh, testing medic AI if you knock if you knock someone down uh, like took them out then the medics would try and resurrect them but uh, they would all try at the same time and so one set of different breakers would resurrect the guy and all the other sets would then kill him and resurrect him and every time he fell he would like the ragdoll would take him slightly downhill and then get up again and so there's a massive like just 20 medics in a ball just endlessly electrocuting this one body as it goes down the hill oh man that sounds good maybe I should go to all of these AI talks <laughs> that's yeah AI is, a, is sort of like panning for gold you know there's a whole yeah. load of technical stuff that just doesn't mean anything to you um, and then every now and then they come up with an act like that and to them like that's 
it doesn't um, sort of get a bigger reaction than all the other technical stuff they're talking about. But to me, it's like, that's amazing. You should tell everyone that. <laughs> I think um, I've marked some of the maths for programmers talks oh, really? just because, like, not the super kind of hardcore stuff, but some of it sounds like, you know, I'll give it a go and see whether I can follow it mm. and, you know... Because some of it just sounded interesting. I can't remember specific talks, but hopefully if they go well, I'll talk about them on the pod next week. <laughs> oh, unless I'm massively jet-lagged and just never come back. <laughs> <laughs> that would be some serious jet-lag. <laughs> uh, I don't know if this was mentioned on the pod before, but the FTL guys announced their new game, um, Into the Breach, and they've shown a trailer of it. Um, I've been playing uh, an early version of that, and... Um, so I want to talk about it, but I don't think I can say anything about how it works other than what's been shown in the trailer. But what's been shown in the trailer is basically um, uh, the format of the game, which is you have three mechs, and um, it's turn-based on a very small grid. I think it's 8x8, eight eight, um, seen from like an isometric perspective, really lovely pixel art. Um, and it's... Uh, you're fighting like giant monsters who are trying to destroy a city and uh, a kaiju and you are uh, you know skyscraper sized mechs and it's turn based and which I might have already said <laughs> I can't remember um, it's just like that terrible interview I had <laughs> um, but the unique thing about it the two unique, unique things about it is one is that all of the um, attacks that the enemies are going to do are um, basically on the enemy turn they can't actually damage anything all they can do is prepare to attack things so they rush over, you see like a, a scorpion thing move over to a building and uh, prepare to attack it and the building goes red and then one of them run over and like prepare to shoot at one of your mechs and your mech will go red and there'll be a line going, showing where they're going to shoot. Um, but then none of it happens and you have your whole turn to see what you're going to do about that. And so on the most basic level, like if they're attacking you, you can just move one square to the left and now they're not attacking you. But if it's a range shot, it's going to go past you and it's going to hit something else. So if you're standing in front of a building, you don't want to... Uh, move out of the way because it's worse for the building to get hit than for you to get hit like your mechs get repaired for free between every mission um, and the buildings are what you really care about because that's like uh, they're your power grid and your power grid is like your persistent health bar throughout the whole thing um, and so it's it's cool because that mechanic like drives you to be heroic you end up like you know putting yourself in harm's way to prevent things um, and you know it sounds like it would be too easy if you if enemies can literally never do anything without warning you first you always have a turn to do it but they can just keep ramping up the numbers until like you have three mechs if there's three enemies all set to damage a building um, then uh, you better be in a position that all of your guys can get to one of them and and uh, usually you can't kill them in one hit so you have to figure out how to like push them out of the way and that's the other unique thing is that um, it's all about pushing things around like almost every in fact all of the attacks of the first squad I don't know this is probably non-final but um uh, the squad I played with, you, all their attacks both damage and push in different ways. So like an artillery one damages the center square and pushes things away from all the adjacent squares. Um, and then, yeah, various configurations of damage and push. And so sometimes you can kill something, but most of the time you're thinking, okay, I can't kill this, but as long as I hit him in this direction, he'll move over there. And then uh, the most satisfying thing is if you can knock them so that instead of shooting this building, now they're lined up to shoot another enemy. And it's even better if they're going to do enough damage to kill that enemy. And it's even better if you use the preview to see the execute, uh, order of execution of their turn and see that, oh, this guy that's going to get shot actually executes his turn after the guy who shoots him, which means when he dies, he won't shoot the thing he was going to shoot. Mm -hmm. So you can save, like, two things in one that way. 
And... Feels like Rube Goldberg made a game. <laughs> yeah, it's really like it's all about chain reactions. I think that kind of works because uh, I think it'd be very hard to set up in a more complicated game, but because it's on this eight by eight grid, there's only so many squares. So when you when you prevent a enemy from damaging something by moving him around it's bound to hit something else oh, so the 8 by great grid is static for each level it doesn't scroll yeah, no. right okay hmm. yeah so it's very small um, That's arenas cool. very short missions usually you have a turn of th- like 4 or 3 um, oh. and after that you win like you just have to prevent damage for that long so sometimes like everything's gone to shit and all you can do is just like we can't kill any of these things but we can just push that one into the river and push that one over there and <laughs> I'll just stand in front of this and take all the damage um <laughs> then you can get through it and uh, it's really compulsive to figure out like pretty quickly you figure out how to you know do well at not taking too much building damage and then it starts to become like can I take no building damage <laughs> and then you start making sacrifices of like well you know I can do it but this guy's gonna die <laughs> when, uh, when a mech dies you still get the mech back but the pilot inside is gone forever and okay. the pilots have like passive buffs and things um, do you train them up then or do you have a sort of allotted number that you have and yeah, they gain experience uh, as you go through, mm. um, and uh, then there's a time travel element of uh, bringing a pilot back. I don't can't hundred percent remember whether they explained how that works, so maybe I shouldn't say it. Doesn't it wasn't so. very obvious how it works okay. from the trailer, but I, I know it's it's mentioned in the trailer, right? I think there was some kind of rewind thing. I haven't yeah, seen the, end the, of the trailer. Trailers. I was desperately trying to organise other things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Those guys are so good at, at taking a complicated idea and breaking it down into really simple systems and making it um, things that you can grasp easily and things that um, because they're simple they're more satisfying to interact with you can make such kind of clean um, decisions and strategies and things that um, just pan out really well yeah amazingly it's uh, they haven't said how far but um, they think it's a way off yet like I played it and thought okay you're going to release next week (laughs) but (laughs) apparently they want to do a lot more to the content and stuff Sounds cool. What have you folks been playing? I've been playing Circles, actually, which the developer sent me a Steam key of because I was a bit confused by it from the demo that they um, put up online. So, essentially, it's a thing where you are in charge of a circle which is your cursor on the screen and then you move it around to to try and get to another point on the screen but in your way are a bunch of other circles that expand or contract or move around in response to your cursor movement and so there's a demo online um, which has a few levels in and you can get feel of it but what I found that I couldn't really get from that was how difficult it might get Mm. and how it might escalate or whether it was just going to be 90 levels of that level of difficulty or you know any of that stuff and so I'm I'm really grateful that um, Presumably you can't touch these other it. circles that are in the way, right? So you aren't supposed to touch any except for the one that you right. are aiming for. So sometimes it'll be that you have a sort of a maze pattern and you are moving sort of at a steady rate and as you get close to some bits, um, they'll expand and you'll know not to go that way and then you'll right. 
guide so, it around. So I was also confused by the trailer because I couldn't work out if things were reacting to you sort of dynamically and there might be multiple solutions or whether it's like a hidden maze and just the closer you get to the walls the more that the walls become obvious. So basically. it's more see this is I think this is part of the problem it, it's such a difficult thing to explain without you having the muscle experience of moving uh, your hand around mm. to actually see what the things are doing. So some of them are more like that maze element Mm. and it feels a lot more like oh I'm just sort of figuring it out and sort of tracing out the shape of the world that it wants me to follow and then others are like oh the the circles will get smaller or small enough to pass uh, um to pass alongside if you are moving your cursor slowly Mm. or if you are moving it at a certain rate or you know there's other things of like if you uh, are sort of going up on the screen then they stay big or you know oh, I see. so right. there's lots of different effects that your movement can have mm. or the speed of your movement or the direction of your movement um and so that is an element of it that it that gets more complicated as you progress um and then it also does things like um once you get to a certain point you can then activate the more difficult versions of the previous levels and so I played through like the first I guess world and then you can go back to it and do it as it's the same puzzles but they're also rotating at the same time (laughs) so things like that and it yeah it's the sort of thing that I think some people will really enjoy and some people will really not and I think I sort of I really enjoyed it but then at some point I was like and at this point it's not the sort of puzzle that I will enjoy banging my head against because it's more about my reflexes than it is about um, necessarily always figuring stuff out like some are still logic based but then it becomes about like an actual um, you know uh dexterity thing and I'm slightly it's not Stephen's sausage roll at that point you know Um, so yeah but also there's just other like really clever things Um, so you'll be like okay I think I get this you know an element changes when I do a thing but then like it suddenly switches to oh there are now puzzles where you have to move your cursor to the, the point that you'd think but that creates a uh, a timeline so I know this is so hard to explain <laughs> so essentially it remembers that sequence of events yeah. and how the circles responded and how they changed during that yeah. and then so once you've done that part of it it then has you start at a slightly different point to get to the to the second oh, exit I see, right. and so you are trying to time your use Mm. of that second one to exploit the first one's Uh like pathways that you set up so genuinely it's I really really like it and I hopefully will write a bit more about it on um, the site but I did a supporter post just sort of explaining that it's really difficult when you've got a game that relies so much on how it feels Mm. to actually intuit what you do 
to to get anywhere with a trailer or to you know even with a demo mm. like it's never going to explain how it unfurls it looks super pretty which probably helps it is beautiful it's very much like a kind of um like one of those society six print yes uh, <laughs> yeah. favorites um so but so i really really like it and i i would say because i was initially like is it worth that much money mm. but i would say that I would have paid that having played it. It's one of those like in reverse things which is so <laughs> difficult to explain to people. Anyway, yes, oh. so that's what I was doing. <laughs> that sounds good. Is it on PC then? Um, it is out on PC now actually. So hmm. yeah, and I've been alternating between that and Cosmic Express, which is Alan Hazeldon's oh, yeah. game. Which oh yeah, that That's isn't cool. out yet. But I had a preview build of it, and oh, I might have to get in yeah. touch with him about that. He's he's around this week, that so was... definitely do. <laughs> I played the um, uh, first version of that, which I think he made for Train Jam last year, maybe. Yeah, no, really, just a train game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I think it was called Train Braining. Uh, yes, I, I also was. see why he didn't go with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it's the, the, that version was the hardest of his games I've ever played. I think, <laughs> like, <laughs> but just the first level felt like the last level of it. It's just absolute. I don't see how this is ever, ever possible. I might ask him to send me that. That sounds like the sort I of thing I'd he's, enjoy. He's um, making this one more approachable than that. It's also so cute. It looks like like these little space stations look like snow globes almost, <laughs> like little cosmic snow globes. And it's just so adorable because it's him and um, Ben. Oh, what's his like? Ben Davis, who was the guy that he worked with on A Good Snowman, mm. and uh, the artist from uh, the Klondike Collective. Yeah, mm. like, yes, I think so. Um, and so, yeah, it's just so pretty and also really difficult, and I love mm. that. So I assume the idea is that you need to trace like a, a point of entry to a point of exit with this train line, and you need to pick up people on the way and deposit them in certain places? So you have a little train car and an entry point, and the train has a certain number of like spaces on it. Um, I think I've only encountered one, two, and three sort of carriages hmm. and then you have to guide it round a square grid um to pick up uh, passengers and drop them off in the right colored stations um and so it starts off relatively straightforward and then the difficulty ramps up and also you get to certain points because it's arranged as like a series of constellations that you can like progress along um, and so some of them have branching points and so depending on where you can exit or where you take the, mm. the now empty train car um, you can actually access the different new levels um, and some of them it's like you can see how to do it one way but because you've seen how to do it one way you can't see the other way because your brain <laughs> refuses to I reorient see. itself and you're like hang on <laughs> and then there's other things like you begin to encounter things like um, there's a green alien that is very cute but it leaves its green goop on the train carriage and so none of the other aliens ah. will get in that <laughs> one afterwards so you can never pick it up first if you need that car for <laughs> anyone else, <laughs> so but it's adorable. You mm. should definitely um, see whether he can show you yeah. to play. Mm. But those are what I have been spending my time on. Mm. I've only been spending my time playing games that I either am making or have been involved in tenuously. Mostly, I, I mean, uh, 
I've been I've been playing Overwatch actually, which I haven't, but uh, been involved <laughs> in making it all. But when <laughs> I hope Overwatch, <laughs> but uh, I've been playing uh, the Signal from Tolba, which is the um, game by Jim Rossignol and the rest of Big Robot. Indeed. Uh, I don't think much of what I did for the game is still in the game. I think uh, I made some like UI icons that the the uh, the um, the descendants of still remain in the game, but uh, <laughs> otherwise it's completely devoid of anything. I think uh, you did I... the um, the menu assets and things for um, so you're being hunted. Uh, I did the, the inventory yeah, items the, for so you're being hunted yeah, and some <laughs> promotional arts and stuff. But yes, and the board game as well. But um, yeah, so it's it's sort of the signal from Tolliver's. Uh, uh, Jim's always been obsessed with Stalker as a as a sort of format for games. He really likes these kind of open world sim-ish games with lots of systems and lots of stuff just happening in the vi- environment, like factions fighting each other. I think he just goes goes kind of spoogy for factions. Spoogy, spoogy for factions. The Jim Morrison story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another good pod title. Um, <laughs> But yes, it's it's so it's sort of a robot uh, stalker, but um, very 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 mellow. It's extremely kind of uh, pleasant to play, even though you're so you're on this. You you play as some sort of survivor robot. It seems floating in orbit around this planet with some sort of mystery signal coming from it, and you can link your your robot brain to um, you can hack into rather uh, robots on the surface who then are act as your your remote body and your chassis and you one of them's destroyed you just kind of move your consciousness to another one basically but as you um the idea is that you ha- kind of have to work secretly within these this the, the initial faction doing doing missions for them so that you gain rank and then you can access sort of other aspects of the of of that faction and then there's a sort of territory acquisition thing where you're moving through this pseudo open world. Parts of it are locked off by environmental hazards that you need to kind of uh, Metroidvania style upgrades in order to access. Mm. But then, uh, then you get extra stuff like the ability to order around robots by zapping them with a little kind of laser thing and then pointing the laser elsewhere to make them go elsewhere. And it's it's really nice. It's I I'm, I don't know how many hours I am into it because I had to restart it at some point when when a patch wiped my save. But uh, from what I played, I imagine it escalates further, and there, there are probably more systems that I've yet to encounter. Mm. But at this stage, it seems to be mostly kind of just moving through the world, conquering little kind of um, uh, bases full of robots and um, there's like outposts and. Hmm. Um, not obelisks, but like artifacts, maybe it looked like. Yeah, so there's things you can collect in the environment. Um, some of them are, seem to be mission based, and they allow you to upgrade your skills. Um, and there's also sort of miniature puzzles within the collection of those. So, uh, again, I don't know to, where, to whether this whether this escalates, but one of the first um, items you collect in the game, it's uh, it's inside this uh, fallen spaceship of some sort, or maybe giant mech that has fallen apart. The landscape is littered with these broken remnants of spaceships and, and this like giant robot skulls that you can walk through the eyeball of and stuff. And this one, as you go into it, it sort of reconfigures itself invisibly as you walk around it. So it's a sort of maze thing. I think this was a puzzle that's also in one of the Stalker games, actually. Um, it's very inspired by, by that sort of, um, that sort of puzzle element. Supernatural, semi-techno weirdness. Um, yeah. That's all I have to say about it, really. I don't, <laughs> I don't know where it goes from you, from that point. The robots you're controlling are they um, 
I'm trying to figure out like what you are. Are you actually their overlord, or are, you said you hack them? Is it more like you don't have anything to do with them? You just decided to invade? Them? Yeah, there's a, there, like, there's a surveyor faction, which you is your initial kind of group that you get into. I don't know whether you get to jump factions later on. There's also there are bandits, uh, other robots, and there are people with zealots as well, who are also also robots. They're all robots. <laughs> um, but the initial faction, the surveyors, and you are not a surveyor clearly, but you right. you are, you've hacked into them through nefarious means. Huh. There's, um, There's he's some... done quite a lot of like playthrough uh, YouTube things, I think, because mm. I remember I watched one about the outposts, oh, yeah. um, which was interesting, and there was another one fairly recently about the um, how they translated the concept art to the mm. art style for the the game as it is now yeah the, and, the concept yeah. artist is a super amazing concept artist called McHugh yeah um, who's uh, probably I mean you probably have seen his stuff I uh, couldn't remember the first name because I was going to say Ian McHugh but then I'm like no I'm thinking of Ian McHugh and I think, that point. I think it is. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he, he he worked for Rockstar for uh, for ages, so I, I imagine you've seen mm. his his art in, in those. But games. it's lovely. Like the mm. the stuff he did for Signal from Tolva is really lovely. Well, it's, it's very much in his style. So since leaving Rockstar, I don't know, maybe well, who's at Rockstar? He does a lot of robot drawings and. St- <laughs> It's hard to exactly describe the star, but it feels like everything has been bashed together out of scrap metal, basically. Mm. Um, and it looks very kind of, despite it being mecha and, uh, and robotic, it also feels strangely organic because these things have just been kind of accumulated in a, in a haphazard way. Yeah. And uh, they did quite an amazing job uh, of, of turning that into 3D assets and animating it, I think. Yeah, those like that was. Um, I think I wrote about that one because it was just it was interesting to me how they'd actually done it and mm. like the brushes that they'd used based on the you know the actual yeah. original artwork. A lot of the yeah. textures have a sort of spat- yeah. spattered painterly feel to them as well. Yeah, I really like the color palette as well. Like it's it, it manages to be quite. Um, pastoral mm. uh, instead of you know that instead of the muddy side of the, that right. palette yeah I mean for being marooned on a desert world fighting robots it's an extremely pleasant place to yeah. be really <laughs> like an Arcadian version yeah. of that yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, there's obviously some greater mystery to the game as well I th- you're picking up story fragments not all of them are in the game at the moment, so it's hard mm. to speak to it. But uh, uh, between the patches, there have been more and more little story bits that you can pick up, and like mm. uh, little fragments of previous robot missions there that give you a bit of detail and background of why people have crashed there and what they're looking for. Does and it feel to be, like... Oh, sorry. I don't know. Well, there's mysterious figures who pop up on the horizon <laughs> and disappear, rather like the, the uh, G-Man out of Half-Life 2. Okay. Does it feel like you're actually learning... Is it... That they're adding the story in that you get more lore for the world and it fleshes it out, or is it that you feel like you're getting closer to what the signal is? Uh, probably both. I, I mean, there's certainly some sort of direction that you're being pointed towards and some sort of end goal, but it's not quite clear what that is. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. From which I will not financially benefit in any way. <laughs> <laughs> just, to, just so you know. Um, I've also been playing XCOM 2 again. Because, mm. um, uh, well, partly because I didn't bring my gaming PC with me to the States. So all I have is PS4. And so I was looking at things I can play on PS4. And uh, XCOM 2 is one. Um, and it's, look, the early experience of that game, it's so much better 
the second time starting because the first time starting was a terrible experience. I just hated it. Uh, just I got I died more on that first mission than I have on any XCOM mission in any XCOM game ever. Um, and this time through, I just skipped the tutorial, which makes the game way easier um, and also way quicker, and also doesn't have a, a terrible cutscene. Um, and the game warns you about it like three different times about are you sure you're skipping like a really good narrative experience that's going to totally ground you in the world and it's great even for experienced players <laughs> I'm fucking sure I played it I didn't like it um, and uh, so at first I was just like my god why have I not been playing XCOM all this time it's just so set. like I think it's the first not so much the very first mission but like as soon as your people level up to squaddies and then they get randomly assigned a class and then uh, their first ability in that class is always basically the defining ability of that class is like the, the really important thing um, and then so on the next mission after that you get to use those abilities and the first time you kind of realise oh shit like my assault guy or ranger um, can actually kill this weakened alien because even though they'd have to move twice to do it they can still use their sword at the end of a, a double move um, and then you do it and it's really satisfying because the thing XCOM 2 is, is especially great at is the, um, the actual execution of those your plan it always looks so good and always so like punchy and uh, cinematic and cool um, but I also think that's that's related to the thing that ultimately makes it extremely frustrating for me which is it's just incredibly unclear and the further you get into it the, the more this becomes a problem and the higher the stakes get because you're invested in your people now and the enemies are doing are more uh, formidable uh, like towards the end um, or I don't know there's like a, a nice spot where your people have leveled up a bunch and the enemies you're facing are still pretty similar and so now your guys are tough and they can you can afford a few mistakes um, and then once the enemies ramp up you get the, the ones that are just uh, you know uh, every now and then there's a jump up in the amount of damage they can do in one turn and so the only I think I've only lost one person and um, it was just because there's an enemy I knew would be able to hit me in that turn but I just didn't remember that they do like 12 damage instead of like 4 <laughs> <laughs> so like oh that's just he's just dead then okay right <laughs> Um, awkward oh dear and when when the stakes are that high uh, that's also when like the environments get more complex there's multi-level buildings and um, the things to do with whether you're concealed or not become crucial and um, especially uh, almost the most important thing in the game is just whether you aggro a pod or not which is just did you move far enough into the unknown that you got into sight range of a group of enemies, um, and if you did, they get to wake up and they get to take a bunch of moves without your input, and um, there's nothing you can do about it, and they will fight you next turn. And if you're already in the middle of a fight when that happens, it's a terrible, terrible thing, and you have no way of knowing where those pods are, and the only way to avoid triggering multiple ones is just to move incredibly slowly. Um, and then the game obviously like punishes you for doing that because a lot of the objectives are time limited and I like that in theory like I like the um, I like having a reason to move forward to be aggressive and take risks and stuff and I don't like playing incredibly cautiously I don't like that doing that thing where all but one person's going to go over to Overwatch and then that one person takes <laughs> two steps forwards and, um, and just cycling like that but the reason that I want to do that the reason that like um, players do do that is that the whole game is about whether you triggered a pod or not and there's almost no way to know whether you're going to do that except just random chance or going incredibly slowly um, and there mm. are like um, scanning grenades they kind of use but then once fight, fights breaks out 
lights break out <laughs> as well. The clarity just you know gets even worse, and multiple level buildings are so hard to see what's going on. There's also a whole lot of bugs to do with the save system, where um, if you like destroy a wall and then reload a save, um, the wall will either uh, be back in place and really be back in place or it'll seem like it's still destroyed and you'll see through it but it is secretly there and oh. it blocks vision from <laughs> <and> shots um, <laughs> and there's loads of stuff like that and the only reason I'm ever loading a save game normally I play like in, in an, I play spiritually in Iron Man mode but I don't actually enable <laughs> Iron Man mode because Iron Man mode prevents you from loading saves and every time I load a save it's because the game completely fucked me with either a bug or such a huge visibility or readability issue that like I wouldn't have done that if I'd known that this mm. wouldn't yeah. work there's things like oh apparently there's an ability that one of your psych, uh, psionic guys has. What are they called? Um, psi troops, I think. Psi operatives. Um, that it can give an extra action to one of your people. And I've had that person in my squad for about 15 missions. And I've used that ability multiple times. And I check on it pretty much every turn. And I still don't know what determines whether you can cast it on that guy or not. <laughs> like sometimes they can only cast it on one person. And it's like three of my people have taken their move and one of them hasn't. And I'm allowed to cast it on one of the ones who's already taken their move, but not the one who hasn't taken their move. <laughs> and that person's further away than the other ones. <laughs> it's not distance, it's not line of sight, it's not whether they've taken their own move. <laughs> Is it some combination of those things? Does it just multiply two numbers together by the date? And then <laughs> I just never figured out what that is. And there, there are other things like, um, there are so many little rules that you just, and you just have to know them. And the game does such a good job of making you care that when you, when you lose someone because of those rules or because uh, just anything goes wrong like um, it generally doesn't get to the point that I actually lose someone before I reload the save because of a uh, you know a usability issue um, but you know it's a game that snowballs in both directions and so when something goes bad everything's going to go bad and then it'll just keep on going bad forever maybe um, that's just life Tom <laughs> that is true maybe life. these things um, that you're calling usability <laughs> issues life is also confusing um <laughs> But if I, you know, every now and then I do uh, fuck up because of a, a tactical error, like I do something and then, you know, um, even just, you know, revealing a pod accidentally, uh, I don't reload because of that, because although I think it's unfair, it's not a usability issue. I knew it could happen when I made that move, so it's not fair to reload. But if it's something where I just literally, like, this guy takes one step closer to an enemy and now he doesn't have a line of sight, even though there's just nothing else in the way, I'm like, well, I can't ever predict that, so <laughs> yeah. I can't really play by those rules. But it makes me appreciate Into the Breach all the more because when you reduce it down to 8 by 8 and <laughs> uh, like that game is just all about clarity everything is 100% clear all the time you still have to learn the rules there's still some things about like what if I push this guy into that guy and there's a guy behind them does the third guy take damage whatever um, but uh, in general even if it's just you're moving your mouse around and you're planning a move it sort of animates what's going to happen hmm. it shows oh if this guy can get pushed you see him get pushed you see yeah. them, oh that's going to do one damage to this guy and uh, so there's so rarely any frustration when you actually commit your move because you you know what's going to happen in terms of your actions and then the worst thing that can happen is the enemy plans a bunch of really uh, uh, really difficult actions to uh, to counter. I um, wonder if they would ever do like a multiplayer version of it as in have you ever played Robo Rally? It's no. So it's a board game oh. um, and you sort of play it as if you are programming mm. a thing 
so you play different cards into movement slots and it's like turn left move forward two you know all of that kind of stuff and it all makes sense right up until everyone else plays <laughs> and they're all doing their moves and suddenly there's someone else in the way and they've pushed you and now you're in a pit and you have to go <laughs> elsewhere oh, and, I see like all your moves get really screwed up by everybody else and mm. then you get shot and then this thing happens and that thing happens and so I'm kind of wondering whether like sort of thing there would be a kind of a, a version of this where all of that like clarity is suddenly taken away you have to like work out or not work out but like suddenly everyone else is a a, a person who is able to respond to your things and it just goes around in that <laughs> loop of like oh god like why am i now over here <laughs> <laughs> yeah i played um uh, a board game called Cult Express recently, oh, okay, which is yeah. um, a similar thing where you, you queue up your actions you all queue up your actions as you quit and then you play them out but you're bandits on a train yeah. and the actions are things like go to the top floor or go down one or turn um, no, you never turn but uh, the action will be like shoot and then when you're planning it you don't know where you're going to be at that point and if someone punches you you get knocked back and if you punch someone else you knock them back and hmm. uh You've so got an actual little train as well. Like, you yeah. make the little train that you play on. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> if that happens unexpectedly, you find yourself in a different position than you were when you, than you expected to be when you, when you played, like, the shoot card, and now you've got to shoot someone, and <laughs> it's like, well, I did say I would shoot on this turn, so I've got to shoot in one direction or the other. And yeah. like, uh, or think, you think that you'll be on top of the train and therefore your shot will go all the way like along and get yeah. somebody on the final thing but you've forgotten that you'll actually be sort of down below in the middle carriage and you're like uh oh <laughs> and like the ranger turns up and you're like hi so um, <laughs> and you could also end up with a like a punching action cued but there's just no one in the carriage with you, so it's just <laughs> I punch impotently in the air <laughs> I don't know what the I don't know how the marriage of theme and mechanics came about there because there's nothing about bandits on a train that makes me think they have to plan their actions in advance and they're committed <laughs> to executing them regardless of situation. Isn't there one where, like, so you, I can't remember, do you play them up and then if you're, if you're technically going through a tunnel you get to play them face down? Yeah. Because well, so, that's where the mystery kind of comes in, isn't it? Yeah, I think you make a hand for yourself beforehand or something. Um, I really can't remember. Then, <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you, you can kind of plan in secret, and then as you lay them down, they're, they're usually public. But I was playing the ghost character, and his his first card is always secret, um, mm. so no one knows what he did first, which is great because that's the one that can totally change everything. If, if your first card was just to move to someone out, somewhere else, then yeah. your subsequent shot is going to shoot someone everyone else is not expecting you to. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Did you guys want to talk about the things that you're working on, like Heat Signature or Rogue Process? I mean, obviously, if not, we can just exorcise this from the pod. <laughs> I'm happy to give Rogue Process a plug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just thought it would be interesting, because obviously it would be a good Well, update. the voters and Greenlight will decide whether it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, it's a game that I'm making with Mike Cook, uh, who's probably been on the podcast a number of times. Mm. Uh, he's a very nice man. He's also an AI b- genius yeah. of some kind. Not that he's artificially intelligent, but he makes <laughs> artificial intelligence. Just intelligence. He's structured by the of years. But yeah, so uh, Rogue Process is sort of, uh, I think, how did Alice describe it? I think she described it as gunpoint meets t- typing of the dead. Yeah, which is or Mavis Beacon. Mavis Beacon, that's it, yeah. But it's somewhere between... I, I suppose it's gun pointy in that it has the same. It's got uh, windows. It's got windows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the windows is gun point like. And jumping. 
Um, <laughs> but it, it's also got a bit of Cannabolt to it. I think in its original jam form, it was going to be much more like Cannabolt. You're going to be running across rooftops. Mm. But mm. Uh, as it's been developed, Mike's ideas have also expanded. So now it's sort of about infiltrating high-tech corporations and, and hacking computers uh, while avoiding security systems. And all of these things you do by going into a hacking mode and then typing very rapidly at the keyboard mm. with all, uh, all the words pop up above the uh, the hackable items. So you can hack a window, which will allow you to smash through it easily. I don't know why that, that happens. <laughs> That's cyberpunk. Um, uh, or, you know, hack a, a, a turret or a security camera and they'll go down. Or, or indeed hack actual individual computers and then you can collect the data and then you get to buy more stuff with the illicit data that you've obtained. Um, I, I'm terrible at it because I'm somebody who has to look at the keyboard while I'm typing. <laughs> so it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a hard thing for me to QA. But, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's, 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 it's been, it's been really fun making something for, um, a game which is procedurally generated, uh, because all of the buildings need to be constructed out of little tiles. And, oh, yeah, yeah, so there's yeah. many, many different ways in which the tiles can fit together, which means, you need to design things to be extremely reusable in ways which you might not expect because an algorithm will put them next to something else which you didn't. So it's, 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 uh, it's an interesting job trying to make stuff because as, as, as an artist, you want to have full control. Mm. And so as the project's gone on, I've been kind of more kind of like, can we put in like chunks of <laughs> pre-designed stuff? Uh, and Mike's gone, oh God. <laughs> and then redesigned his entire algorithm to accommodate it because he's so nice. This is a very different relationship than I have with John Roberts. <laughs> so can we do this? No, sorry. <laughs> yes. But, uh, it's, it's interesting. I, again, it's a game I don't know where it's going to go because it's not been finished yet. Uh, okay. and uh, I think a lot of the process has been about putting it in front of people and getting their feedback and then kind of massaging the systems based on that feedback so it could completely change again in another six months but we'll see it's I think an probably... ongoing iteration yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I played a, a more recent build of it um, lately and the addition that I hadn't seen before was uh, you can now type to activate your abilities mm. and um, one of them is a taser type thing that electrocutes nearby people and sends them flying <laughs> just with a ridiculous force <laughs> it looks pretty good actually I, say. I, didn't, I didn't design the special effects for that but uh it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's obviously programmer art, but actually I think, oh no, you've done a good enough job. I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah, it's like a yet. lightning bolt thing sort of art. Yeah. Um, it looks nice in slow motion as well. When you go into hacking mode, everything goes into slow mode, which looks uh, pretty. Yeah. I actually solved a, a puzzle with it where, um, uh, I don't know if this is sort of in, intentionally generated this way, but um, broke into a building and there was just like an, an overhanging office inside that was security level 3 and I didn't know how security levels worked so I didn't know how I would ever get the security level 3 to get up there so the only stairs led there were uh, security level 3 but there was an executive up there and I jumped below him and then used my taser to electrocute him through the floor and he went flying so hard that he broke his own window <laughs> and then I was able to jump up through the broken window and get it <laughs> perfect <laughs> yeah it's awesome um, I just realised I have a game coming out possibly the day you release this or on the 3rd anyway um, uh, I'm releasing more yeah, Friday, that's Friday, isn't my, it? Uh, side project um, that I've been working on um, sort of in my breaks from Heat Signature I, I made it because I took a break from Heat Signature for um, uh, about six weeks and uh, wanted to sort of just uh, think about something else and turns out if you stop thinking about the game you're working on you just or if you stop working on the game you're working on you just think about it all the time <laughs> if you're not actually working on it uh, that's just kind of frustrating 
Um, and the only thing I could do that would actually get my brain to think about something else was to make another game. <laughs> um, and this was heavily inspired by Imbroglio, which is a, a iOS game by Michael Bro, where each tile you move to determines what weapon you attack with when you're there. And in Morphblade, it's a hex grid rather than a square grid, and uh, you instead of planning out a whole grid beforehand and designing that and then playing, and you build it as you go. So you start with just two hexes, and then you kill something, and you by doing that you've earned another hex, and you get to choose which side it goes on. Um, and you're, at each stage, between each wave, you're kind of offered a, an array of possible hexes you can make, and they have diff they have both types and locations. And so, like this one's going to be a blade, and it's on the top, and this one's going to be a healing hex, and it's on the bottom. And you move to it to decide that yes, I want that one and not the others. Um, and you build the grid that way. And uh, you can, when the hexes earn enough uh, sort of experience, like if you kill with one, it gets you know one point of experience. And when it gets six, you can level it up. And when you level it up, you can upgrade it. And upgrading uh, works by splicing it with a nearby hex. So if you have like a hammer next to a repair one uh, and a blaze one, then you choose whether you want to combine it with the hammer or the blades. And if you combine it with the blades, it's going to attack things to the sides as well as ahead. And if you combine it with the repair hex, it's going to heal things when it kills. And so like where you place these things determines not only like where what attacks are available to you as you move around that space, but also what possible upgrades you'll be able to attach to those things because you can only upgrade with adjacent things. Um, so it's kind of about like planning out that grid and then uh, trying to play on it, not just to survive, but to kill things in the right places and with the right weapons to upgrade the ones you care about to get the perks that you want by combining with the right things. And uh, you can it can get ridiculous because you can upgrade anything with six different upgrades and people have figured out I've never done it successfully but <laughs> my testers assure me that the most effective strategy is teleporters <laughs> because you can upgrade a teleporter with a teleporter and then it doesn't take a turn to teleport so you not you can go anywhere but not, the enemies can't move when you do and then you can upgrade it to also kill the thing when you arrive so you can teleport <laughs> into enemies and, and uh, kill them that way um Oh, wow. You can make it knock back all the surrounding enemies as well. <laughs> and uh, I imagine that's like the most fabulous entrance. You just teleport in, knock yep. everyone back, and you're like, hello! <laughs> and no one sees it, because time doesn't move. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it's the thing that just kind of, um, as I worked on it, it kind of, uh, I was ready to release it like in August, and I didn't because I went to Stugan, and I didn't want to release it like right as I went to work on heating the Um and then I got less and less happy with it and then kind of revamped it over the last few months and uh, made it into something that it actually seems worth selling. So it's going to be five bucks on Steam and it will be out probably by the time you hear this. Cool. Cool. Are you doing trailers and things? I did make a, a 90 second explanation of it. That's not really like, you know, it's still me talk, talking over the game. It's basically <laughs> just what I just said to you, but I'm playing it at the same time. <laughs> cool. Oh, Does it have any lore? <laughs> um, so I had to write tips and until I wrote tips there was no real text in the game mm. and so it didn't have like a voice and uh, I decided to make the tips extremely silly <laughs> so I'm not sure if it has a backstory but I had to invent a character called Higson Morphblade Third. <laughs> good that's it, isn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, yeah, gosh. You've probably got a party to attend. <laughs> I have at some point. Um, oh, but um, we're not going to do like, questions or anything because we don't have any questions and we ask for any. And, yeah. Well, to be fair, I asked how you two were doing with your games. Yeah, so you I think that's a, yeah. You heard from the only real people who matter. <laughs> the dead. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, I don't know, do we do a whole outro bit? Should we tell them I mean, we can do. It might be a disaster given, like, I can't remember it at the best of times and you two have just, like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hang on, hang on. Let's, let's see what we can do. <laughs> you can find us on the internet at crateandcrowbar.com and then if you go there, there's a link to our Discord thing where people will talk at you about stuff um, and you can talk to them with them. With them, not at them. Okay. Um, and then at Crate and Crowbar is us on Twitter. And we don't have a Facebook. And I don't think there's a YouTube that I know the name of. Um, yeah, there is a YouTube I don't know the name of it. Is it Crate and Crowbar? Yes. Okay, fine. Yeah, no, go there as well. Um, and is there more? Do we have more? Uh, you can send us questions at questions at Crate and Crowbar. Oh, yeah. have them not answered on pods like this. That's true. Um, and then us. We, we are oh, on yeah. the internet. So where are you, Tom? <laughs> on Twitter, I'm at Pentadact. P-E-N-T-A-D-C-A. <laughs> yeah, don't go to that one. <laughs> P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. And Marsh? That's Marsh Davis. D-A-V-I-E-S. Ooh. And I'm at Philippa War, which is P-H-I-L-I-P-P-A-W-A-R-R. Wow. I liked how you had to close your eyes to, to, to spell your own name. <laughs> I know. On the phone. I was like, oh. Yeah. Um, shall we do the, the mumble? The mumble of leaving. <laughs> Let us do the mumble of leaving. That is the thing we're about. Yeah.